He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 6th, 2021. Come in close. I have a secret to tell you. Joe Walsh, back on my show, is thinking about moving to Colorado. He's thinking about Lauren Boebert. He's thinking maybe somebody like him could be better in Congress than she is. I don't know. A lot of people are thinking about beating Lauren Boebert. Dylan Roberts, my guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, may be in the race. Carrie Donovan is for sure, along with others. How about Marjorie Taylor Greene? The events of this week are discussed with Joe Walsh in the first interview of the day. Then we have a special feature. I had the pleasure of working with Judge O. Otto Moore, former Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. He was one of my mentors. He worked with Brooke Wanneke, my primary mentor, in the office of the Denver DA under Dale Tooley and then Norm Early. Norm's been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And this week, I have another guest from the Denver DA's office. I have Judge Moore and somebody who knew Judge Moore. Judge Moore, geez, he'd be well into his hundreds by now. He lived into his 90s, and he passed away in 1990. He was born in 1896. Val Golightly is a little younger than me, which means she's kind of a spring chicken. But we have our 40th reunion coming up at CU Law. And together, we both worked starting June 1, 1980 at the Denver DA's office. And you'll hear all about it when I have Val Golightly Howell in my Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's amazing. We catch up on old times. And you will enjoy it. And you'll enjoy Dave Gunder's song called Come Down, Miss Lizzie. And I hope you'll enjoy me reading the sentencing statement by Alexei Navalny, who I think is a courageous human being living out his life of politics in prison. And Vlad Putin, he remains in power. But for how long? The impeachment trial is coming up. We talk about that next with Joe Walsh. Thanks for tuning in. Joe Walsh, welcome back. Every time I have you on, it means nothing but trouble. Always good to be with you. You are the former congressman from Illinois. And tell me, do you cause trouble for all your hosts and people you talk with? Well, you know, if you generally speak the truth these days, yeah, you cause trouble. When did you decide to become a truth teller? Take us through that journey. No, Craig, the minute I got into politics, this is what's the damnedest thing to me. And I I always tried to be this way on the radio. If you just say what you think, you don't have to think about what you say. You're in this business. These politicians and these media people once you have to think about what you're it's just it's crazy. Just speak your truth. 
I always found that easier. And it is my second job. I've never given up my day job as a Colorado trial attorney. Did you ever think about why did I ever get into politics, A, and media, too? No, my life, Craig, was really service. I've got a master's degree in public policy from the University of Chicago. I devoted most of my adult life to public policy, especially urban policy, urban poverty, especially urban education, issues like school choice. I've always been interested in politics, but I think you and I talked back in 2010, I got pissed off like a lot of Republicans did at Obamacare and all the debt and deficits in the country. So I ran for Congress. Right. And you became part of the Tea Party. And I well recall, because I was doing daily radio back then, this Tea Party movement was new. It was never thought that people on the right would take to the streets, but they did in abundance with the Tea Party. In Colorado, there was a huge rally at the Capitol. We had never seen anything like it. And I thought it was mainly a response to Obamacare. Was that right? Is that what happened in Illinois? It was, Craig. And I'll tell you what, I've got to write the book about what the Tea Party really was, because you're right. I got the Tea Party wave carried me to Congress. And what it was for me was it was all about Obamacare. But you'll remember the Tea Party began before Obama got elected. It began when George W. was president and all of the bailouts and the debt that he was incurring. I really always thought from the beginning the Tea Party was primarily we're bankrupting future generations. We need to stop that. Now, you look at today, Craig, a lot of people blame the Tea Party for like a precursor to Trump. And there's some truth to that. Right. It seems so quaint to think that anybody worried about debt or deficits. But that was big back when you were in Congress, back when the Tea Party got formed. That was, Craig, that was the issue. And I was part of a class of 62 freshman Republicans, and we all went there to do something about this debt. I found out in a couple of days in Washington that the Republican Party had no interest either, and the Democrat Party doesn't as well. But your point is a perfect one. Before Trump, we actually debated and fought about issues. Once Trump came on the scene, it was just all Donald Trump 24-7. Right. But I didn't think everybody would completely forget about the budget, but it appears that they have. Craig, if I had a dollar for every one of my former Republican colleagues, guys like Jim Jordan and the rest who have told me privately how upset they are about the debt, but they just, they never said it publicly when Trump was president. So yes, just one more piece of evidence that obeyance to to Trump, the ruler, overruled everything else. Did you like being a congressman? Was it a fun existence? I'm the wrong person to ask because I got elected in 2010 I wasn't a young kid. I was in my mid to late 40s and I wanted to get stuff done. A lot of people go to Congress and their eyes are big and they're caught up in all the stars and it's very intoxicating. And you're seeing all these lobbyists and the parties, everybody's schmoozing you and whining and dining you. I didn't care about any of that. I slept on the floor of my office. I turned down all my benefits. I came home all the time. I wanted to get stuff done. But then you combine that, Craig, with the fact that right away I was running for my life 
they redistricted me into a Democratic district here in Illinois. So I never really had time to enjoy being a congressman. What about your radio experience? You still are on Chicago radio every day, as I understand. Plus, you scream around the globe. Tell us about your experience now as compared with when you were a Salem syndicated host. Well, it's difficult. Like you, I speak my truth on the radio. And right now in the conservative media world, and it was certainly this way when I was with Salem, you had to be a Trump cheerleader. You had to speak well of Donald Trump. That's what I was told to do every day. I couldn't do that because I could only say what I believed. So it made for about four years or so just really difficult a difficult experience trying to hang on to my radio job. Tell us about your show now. How can people listen and who is your audience? So what I'm trying to do now, Craig, is I'm trying to rebut all of this conservative media tribal crap. I'm trying to put out a show out there that talks about the truth. And I call myself, I'm the only anti-Trump conservative in conservative talk radio. Will it work? I don't know. I've got a show every day here in Chicago. We're trying to grow it around the country. People can listen anywhere. Go to GabRadioNetwork.com. That's Gab with a G, GabRadioNetwork.com. Look for the Joe Walsh Show page. We're on every afternoon. I think tribalism, Craig, is killing this country. And I'm trying to put a radio show out there that's not politically tribal. What are the tribes, Joe? (laughs) That's a great question. The tribes for the past four years, Craig, have been Donald Trump is the greatest guy, who, person who's ever lived versus Donald Trump is the personification of evil. So it's either the Fox News tribe and Salem Media and Rush Limbaugh and all of those people belong to that tribe, or it's the MSNBC tribe. Donald Trump is evil. Everything he does is bad. Man, it's difficult to make a go of it if you're not in one of those tribes. Is Donald Trump evil? I think he's one of the most horrible human beings who's ever lived. Is that evil? I don't know. I think he's one of the most horrible people who's ever lived. And I find it fascinating that the greatest country in the history of the world elected a horrible person. I agree. I spent 16 years as a prosecutor and now in my 40th year of practicing law. I haven't seen anybody quite as sociopathic. And downright evil as Donald Trump. I came to that conclusion reluctantly, but it was confirmed to me on January 6th. Let's talk about the Trump insurrection. What's your take on it, Joe? Uh, Donald Trump incited it, Craig, and he incited the insurrection. I go back to last summer. I remember the first day, it was sometime in June, when I heard Donald Trump give a speech And he talked about the upcoming election that will be stolen. And I heard a president last summer say there are only two possible outcomes. Either I win or it will be stolen from me. He repeated that almost every day. And then after the election, he said it was stolen from him. He attacked our democracy. But that lie, Craig, people believed. And the people who believed that lie stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. It was the big lie. And I use that term recognizing the Third Reich and the Holocaust analogies. I'm not much to use Holocaust metaphors, but I think it fits here because 
this big lie led to violence, and it could keep leading to violence. I think it's despicable. I think it goes back even further. Did you ever interview Roger Stone? I never did. <laughs> I did interview him. He's a self-confessed dirty trickster. Yeah. And he came up with that phrase, stop this deal, back in 2016. And I yeah. think Trump was prepared to roll all this out when he lost to Hillary Clinton, only that didn't happen. Absolutely. And I don't like that people focus on Trump's speech the morning of January 6th, because that didn't incite what happened. You nailed it. It was the big lie. It was month after month of lying about a stolen election. And you and I see the polling, 80 to 90 percent of Republicans still believe the lie. I think that Trump is going to keep that lie and it will keep him relevant for the next four years. That's when the trial attorneys come in. There's a big lawsuit in Denver filed by Dr. Eric Coomer, who worked for Dominion. He got slandered on Colorado radio and with people who are part of Salem. They put it out there that this guy, Joe Altman, who has conservative daily podcast in charge of some data network, he was allowed to go on Colorado radio to say, hey, I infiltrated an Antifa call. Now, tell me, how do you do that? Anyway, (laughs) none of the hosts put him on the spot. He said, I heard this guy, Eric, say what Peter Strzok did. We're not going to let Trump win. Don't worry about that. No fucking way. And this guy, Joe Altman, goes on Colorado radio, Salem affiliates, and says, hey, guess what? The fix is in. It's through Dominion. It's through Eric Coomer. Next thing you know, Michelle Malkin, who's in Colorado, she puts it on Newsmax. Next thing you know, all the Trump family is tweeting about it. And it's a big part of the big lie. They needed a villain. That's part of the smart tech lawsuit that I'm sure you're following. Yes. Two plus two equals four. Yeah. Joe Biden (laughs) won the election. And Donald Trump needed a villain. And the villain had to be Dominion and smart tech some company that had the capacity to swing all those votes. I think that lawsuit, Dominion, Eric Coomer, Smart Tech, I think the truth is going to come out of those. Well, and Donald Trump, Craig, also needed media cheerleaders to echo his lie. And they did. Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, and you go right down the road, damn near every night on Fox News, OAN and Newsmax, and in almost all of conservative talk radio for the past seven to eight months, Trump's cheerleaders have been echoing his lie, too, and and they need to pay a price. Tell me how you're going to cover the Trump insurrection trial, impeachment trial next week on your show. Well, my expectations, Craig, and I'm curious what yours are, I don't think it's going to be much of a trial. I think both sides, Republicans and Democrats, want this thing over with for political reasons. So I I don't think we'll have witnesses. I think the Democrats will make a really strong, compelling, obvious case, and the Trump team will present kind of a weak, silly rebuttal, and that'll be it. I think both sides want this thing done. So I think it'll be kind of anticlimactic. What do you think? I disagree. Infrared dime, infrared dollar. They have prime time. They're going to put it on every evening. 
And they have to call some witnesses. They have to put on some new evidence. For example, Officer Sicknick, who got beat to death with a fire extinguisher, you lived and slept in the Capitol. Is it conceivable to you that there's not footage of that somewhere? Don't you expect to see video of that somehow, some way? Yeah, I expect there is. But, Craig, help me. Like, I don't think Trump's team will bring witnesses forth, right? Correct. You're thinking the Democrats will. Yes, they control it. No more Mitch McConnell blocking. They can put on any kind of case they want, be creative. No, I agree. But I think the Democrats are under political pressure to just move on and get this thing over See, with, that's, too. That's where you're putting on your Republican hat. I don't think Democrats <laughs> are ready to move on. I'm not a Democrat, but I'm sure as hell never been a Republican. I don't want to be a Republican, even more so now because of Donald Trump and the way they capitulated right. to him. There's got to be a new party. but. The Dems and people like me, we want a trial. I couldn't stand it when there was no evidence at the last impeachment trial. Maybe you're right, Joe, but I'll bet you a dollar that they put on witnesses. Joe Biden does not want a trial. Joe Biden just wants this thing over. He wants to move on to his agenda. I think that's what he's Schumer and Pelosi. So they're in a bit of a bind. Well, we shall see. I think it could be good. Why do it on prime time unless you're going to put on a moving presentation? I expect some evidence we've never seen before, and it's going to blow us away. Craig, that would be awesome. Short of that, I don't expect 17 Senate Republicans to do the right thing. Do you? Well, I'd bet your way, but I think there's a puncher's chance. And you know what's interesting about the numbers, Joe, me being a trial attorney and you understanding there are 12 people on a jury. They come in in a criminal case. They're told this defendant is presumed innocent. This prosecutor has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense doesn't have to do anything. Now, that's quite a cloak, the presumption of innocence, and I have to overcome it and convince 12 Americans who start with the presumption of innocence that they are going to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt based on the evidence that I put in. We know that five Republicans have already signaled they are with the Democrats, but they need 12 more. What an interesting number, right? 12 people you have to convince from Jump Street, and that's what every prosecutor faces. We've got to convince 12 people presume this guy innocent. Let's put on the evidence and see if we can do it. I just think it's interesting that it comes down to that number 12. (laughs) Craig, that is interesting. I will just say, I think the the Republicans, again, politically, they're still scared of Trump's voters. If they convicted this president, 30 to 40 to 50 percent of the Republican base would walk. Right. But that's why you have to put on a magnificent show. It's just like the Lakers versus the Nuggets this week. It's so sad. I hope we get better. But in the second half, even though I wanted the Nuggets to win, the Lakers just took over LeBron, et cetera. That could happen here with the evidence. And there could be momentum. Everybody watching in their homes, like I watched the Lakers and the Nuggets, we could see that the Lakers were the better team. Now, if the public is attracted to an exciting trial, can you imagine if you call Mike Pence as your first witness? What will be the ratings on that? 
Craig, I think you're smoking something. That's not going to happen. I'm just saying that if they can capture people's attention and you yeah. can move public opinion where people say, whoa, it's like OJ. I really liked OJ Simpson. He was a great football player, USC, yep. Buffalo Bills. But I'm seeing this evidence. And then if public opinion gets moved 20 or 30 points, won't the Republicans follow? This is so interesting to hear you say this. You've given me some hope. I figured this thing would be over in two days. Right. See, I'm giving you hope. Maybe you need to come to Colorado. You know, it's a beautiful <laughs> state. We have controversial Congress people who need to be replaced. Maybe you've heard about Lauren Boebert. Before we go there, what about the events yesterday in the House of Representatives where you once served, Joe? Tell us what you thought of the ejection of Ms. Taylor Greene. You know, the Republicans should have disciplined her. The Republicans should have shunned her. The Republicans should have gotten her off of the committees and, and removed her from the caucus. The Republicans needed to do all that. I got a problem with the Democrats telling the minority party who they can and cannot have on a committee. But you know what? What happened yesterday is all the fault of the Republicans because they didn't clean their own house. They've got no one to blame but themselves for her. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy does not seem like he could lead a junior high class, let alone the Republican side of the House of Representatives. Am I right? You know the guy, Kevin McCarthy. Is he a good guy? Does he have intelligence? What's going on there? No, your instincts are right. I know McCarthy well. He's not a strong person. He's not a leader. Craig, he's a political animal. He knows the makeup of every congressional district in the country animal, but he doesn't know policy and he doesn't know how to lead and he's not strong. And Republicans know that. I thought it was terrible when he went down to Mar-a-Lago. How about you? To kiss the ring <laughs> of the former president? Disgusting. Well, I, I do. But Craig, again, and maybe you and I differ, Donald Trump's party, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Wow, that's not good for the country. What about another former congressman, David Jolly? He started the SAM party, Serve America Party. Do you know David Jolly? What do you think about these third party efforts? Well, I do. He's a good guy. And I know he's thinking about maybe running for governor of Florida as an independent. Craig, I think the Republican Party is dying. I think it's breaking up before our eyes. It's going to become a regional party. I think its days as a national party are over. Something's got to replace it. Some kind of center, center right, common sense, let's get shit done kind of a party, I think is going to replace it in the next few years. I hope so. Let's talk about a Republican who's taken a stand, sort of like you or me, although I've never been a Republican, Adam Kinzinger. He's from Illinois. You're from Illinois. What do you know about this guy? Great guy. And he and I got elected together. He got sent to Congress in that class of 2010. Look, Craig, you know, his vote to impeach Trump, that wasn't political because it's not a winning vote. Every one of those 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Trump are going to have the time of their lives trying to defend their seats next year. Liz Cheney, People talk about Liz Cheney this week. It's great. She held her position in leadership. I don't see how she hangs on to her job next year. She's going to have a primary challenge. So I, I give them credit because their votes were courageous. 
Maybe she needed to move a little south to Colorado and challenge Lauren Boebert in a primary. Or maybe a guy like you should move to Colorado. Ever thought about that? I have always thought about moving to Colorado. It's a state I'd love to live in, Craig. And look, I think what's going to happen is, I think what you're going to see is maybe people like me and others running as independents. How cool would it be if we sent four to five independents to Congress in 2022? I think that'd be a good thing. Now you're smoking something, and I'm not sure it's legal in Illinois. It's mandatory in Colorado. I hope you know that. So if you move here. I know, I know. No, it is now. You knew that, Craig. It is now legal in Illinois as well. Really? Do you have a sports wagering as well? We do not. We do not. See, Colorado's ahead of the game. I don't know how we lived without sports wagering. You have a big political year next year. You have a gubernatorial race. You have a Senate race. I know, but it's a no-brainer. Michael Bennett will win re-election. Jared Polis is a cinch. It's a blue state. Is it a blue oh, state, Craig? yeah. Donald Trump has made it a blue state. The only state that may have had a bigger swing from 2016 to 2020 in terms of rejecting Trump, either Colorado or Vermont. He came within four points in 2016. He lost by 13 points in 2020. Well, and, and I, I look at a guy like Cory Gardner, who I got elected with in 2010. He, he can't get elected statewide in that state. If he can't, yeah, it's a blue state. It definitely is. But let's talk about Lauren Boebert. You probably heard about our latest, not greatest. What do you think of this freshman congressperson? It just slays me, Craig, that she and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they just don't seem like serious people. She cut that commercial about walking around Washington, D.C. with a gun, and then she really wasn't walking around Washington, D.C. armed. I know you're going to have redistricting. We all are next year. But she doesn't seem like a serious legislator to me at all. But you're a gun guy. I've been thinking about talk radio. I had Brian Rosenwald on. I don't know if you read his book about talk radio. It was pretty good. He's a historian. Yeah, Yeah, I have not read the book. We were talking about what's going on these days. And talk radio, Lauren Boebert is a favorite. That doesn't surprise you. And the other thing that talk radio survives on is firearm sales. Yes. I don't know if you do that advertising, but... I would think maybe with your Republican background, you'd like Lauren Boebert and all her gun stuff. Craig, I like her on some of the issues. But again, like with Marjorie Taylor Greene, sure, she's probably a rock rib conservative on most of the issues. But the woman believes in conspiracies and lies and bigotry and hate. Again, replicating Donald Trump, I worry because that has become the Republican Party. And because of people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, people in the suburbs no longer vote Republican. Right. I don't know why they would. That's why no Republican's going to win in Colorado. You have to win the Denver-Boulder area or not lose it as badly as Donald Trump types are losing it. But this is not just divisive for the United States. It's divisive for Colorado. We have a Western Slope that is completely different than the Eastern Front Range. And people are getting mad. Weld County, where Greeley is, is talking about seceding and becoming part of Wyoming. Seriously. 
And then you have Texas with Alan West, who served one term in Congress, moved from Florida to Texas. Now he's the Texas State Party chair. He wants Texas to vote on secession. It's crazy. What do you make of what Alan West is doing? Well, I will tell you, Craig, it may seem crazy, but these are discussions that people were having before Trump. America was divided before Trump. I think Trump got elected because we were so divided. Again, it used to be a divide on like policy and and philosophy. But no, this notion of can this great, good, decent country stay together? I mean, I'm glad Trump lost, but the country still really divided and you identified it. It is an urban rural divide primarily. And somehow we've got to figure out how to repair that divide. I agree. A lot of this comes down to state party chairman races. We have one coming up in Colorado, Scott Gessler, Christy Burton Brown, and they're both still pushing the big lie, which means that Colorado is going nowhere. But I look at states like Maryland or Massachusetts. They have Republican governors. Seems their parties, Republican parties adopted a different way, less strident where they could compete. I see Illinois, the state party, is moving to censure Adam Kinzinger, but they may have a new head of the party who will retract that. Isn't that what it comes down to? Talk to us about Illinois. They must be having that debate. Are we going to go Trump or more like Maryland and Massachusetts? Well, what's difficult about Illinois, Craig, is it's it's like California. It's a one-party state. There really is no Republican Party in Illinois. One thing that Donald Trump did is he remade all the state parties. They all, be, almost almost all of them, became extensions of Trump and led by Trumpian people. You're seeing that play out, I think, in a lot of these states. And you talk about Massachusetts and Maryland. Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, thinking about running maybe for president in 2024. Larry Hogan, who's a good guy, has no shot at getting a Republican Party nomination in 2024, which again argues for something else has got to come along. I know it. This big trial. My attitude is go big or go home. But you may be right. Maybe Joe Biden is going to shut this down. Maybe he doesn't like it. And maybe... You know, he's the calm grandfather type who says, sit down, Craig, we're going to do it my way. Is that what you're predicting? And how do you think Joe Biden is is doing right now? Yeah, I, I think that's the word that Biden has laid down to Pelosi and Schumer. Just get this thing over with and let's move on to our agenda. I think so far, Craig, I think Joe Biden's done a wonderful job putting the whole idea of executive orders aside, which I have a problem with. I mean, he was at the State Department yesterday. The message that Biden delivered to the world, diplomacy is back. Hey, all of our allies, we like you again. Putin, you're a thug. I mean, he's telling the world that the country's back, which is such a necessary thing. Oh, I love that speech. And who call out Vladimir Putin and, you know, praise Navalny and call for his release. I've seen very few speeches as courageous as Navalny as he got sentenced. Oh, my gosh. Wow. What a speech. What courage. What courage. And every American should see that. That's you talk about real courage. Look, Biden, to me, Craig, was shaky sometimes, oftentimes during the campaign. 
he, he really seems to have his footing, though, as president. He seems confident to the point. I had always assumed that he was just going to be a one-term president. I don't know that he will be. No, he works out. I think he's risen to the occasion. Yeah. Maybe he'll last, maybe he won't. But I have noticed this, and it might be part of the inherent bigotry of the Republican Party, that a lot of Republicans, and you talk to more of them than I do, they are freaked out over Kamala Harris, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. And I don't think it's fair. I think part of it is just racist. To this day, Craig, I still engage with thousands of GOP-based voters and Trump supporters every day. Part of it is racist. Now, the Republican Party class is scared to death of her because they know on paper she's going to be really tough to beat. On paper, she's a superstar. She's articulate. She's smart. She's tough. But among the rank-and-file GOP-based voter out there, there is a lot of racism with her. Right. And the rank-and-file love Marjorie Taylor Greene much more than they love Liz Cheney. And Greene is a racist. She's an anti-Semite. You talk about tribes. My tribe is worried about anti-Semites like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Do you think Jewish people have a good reason to run away from this kind of Republican Party? Oh, God, yeah. But again, Craig, you know this because you and I talked about it. Trump dabbles in and dabbled in anti-Semitism over the course of four years. Anti-Semitism, as you know, Craig, is one of those uglinesses that both the far left and the far right are attracted to. And it needs to be called out and condemned. Ilhan Omar has dabbled in. Rashid Tlaib has dabbled in anti-Semitism. But it's off the charts with Marjorie Greene. And it just saddens me that the party stands by her. And it sickens me that the president of the United States singles her out for praise. Donald Trump disgusts me. But I'm heartened by the fact that Joe Walsh is thinking about maybe moving to Colorado. What if I asked you really nice, Joe? We have to get rid of Lauren Boebert. She's a Colorado embarrassment. You like Colorado. Why don't you move here? Are you still a Republican? I left the Republican Party a year ago. I am hoping to move to Colorado soon. I couldn't get elected to anything, Craig, as a Republican. If I run for anything, it would have to be as an independent. Who knows, my friend? Well, we know that Lauren Boebert has to go. Marjorie Taylor Greene has to go. This edition of the Republican Party needs to go. Give me some hope. How do we get rid of Donald Trump and Trumpism? Well, here's the thing. Something new, Craig, here's your hope that something new is going to replace it. The Republican Party is Trump's party. It's the party of Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump. That's not changing. But that party is dying and shrinking. And so sometime, I really do believe, Craig, in the next four to 10 years, something's going to replace it because people like you and me, principal conservatives, moderates, independents, centrists need a place to go. I agree with you. It's so good to talk to you, Joe Walsh. Give out one more time how people can follow you, A, on Twitter and social media, and then B, on the radio. I will. But I just want to say again that I think the world of you and I'm a huge fan of you because you every day speak your truth, Craig Silverman. And I love that. Um, Follow me on Twitter at Walsh Freedom. 
my radio show, if you want to listen every day, go to gabradionetwork.com, gabradionetwork.com. Look for the Joe Walsh Show. I'm on every single day. Craig, thank you. It's always good to be Thanks, with you. Thanks, Joe. Can't wait till you move to Colorado. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBL LawLLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I sure do enjoy putting on a podcast, writing a column for the Colorado Sun. Both of these ventures causes me to think about current events, history, how to entertain people. I got entertained last week. I was researching a column. I was going to write about Brandenburg v. Ohio, a Klan leader in 64. He got a bunch of his KKK people, the Klu Kluxers, as Oato Moore would put it. I'll get to Oato Moore. Anyway, he invited a TV station. He got prosecuted. He got convicted and went up to the United States Supreme Court that said not so fast. In fact, it was 1968. It was assigned to an associate justice, Abe Fortas, who had been put on the court by Lyndon Johnson. And the argument was, could the guy be prosecuted for burning a cross on a farm field and talking bad about Jews and blacks? And the Supreme Court decided, no, you really can't be. You have to show some imminent danger. We're not going to punish just words because of our free speech clause, etc. Only Abe Fortas did not get to write the opinion because it turned out this great lawyer friend of Lyndon Johnson never really stopped being a lawyer. In fact, he was taking money from corporations while he was on the court. Then he took money to try to arrange a pardon with Lyndon Johnson, who was giving up the job. We've been through stuff like that. And an article of impeachment was drafted against Fortas. And he said, that's okay, I'm going to resign. And he left. And he went back to private practice. But Brandenburg v. Ohio came out and it said, you know what, Klan guys can do what they want. A lot of the previous cases involved the Klan. They can say what they want. They can march down streets. But in the process of doing the research, I stumbled again on Colorado's past with the Klan. I've covered that, but I could always learn more because I'm not that old. I don't remember what was going on 100 years ago, but my grandfather Harry was here, and so was O. Otto Moore, 
They were classmates at the Westminster Law School, the only evening law school between the Midwest and California. People could work and still get a law degree. That was my grandpa, Harry, a blessed memory. And he started the Silvermans being lawyers. O. Ottomore was his classmate, a World War I bet, and he fought the Klan right out of South High School. He was thrust into it because the Klan, as he was finishing law school, was ascendant in Denver. And O. Otto got hired to be a deputy DA by Philip Van Sice. And I write about it in my column last week that I hope you saw in the Colorado Sun. But the heart of the column was the tape recording that I got courtesy of the Denver Public Library about O. Otto Moore and his recollections of fighting the Klan in the 20s. Now, here is the incredible sound of an interview conducted by a historian, I suppose. James Harlan Davis does the questioning. You might hear him a bit in the background, but listen to this. O. Otto had come to Colorado when his mom got tuberculosis. Sadly, she did not survive, but he grew up here. He went to South High School. He was here ever since 1901 at the age of five or six. And then he ended up serving in World War I, getting out, completing his degree and going to Westminster Law School to become a lawyer. And then he gets hired by the Denver DA, Republican Philip Van Sy's elected in 1920, unaware that in a year or so, the Klan was going to take over Denver and Colorado. I thought this was the perfect show to do it. Enjoy. One of my mentors, former Colorado Supreme Court Chief Justice, Ostis Otto Moore. My contact with Ku Klux Klan started primarily uh, in uh, about December of 1923, uh, at which time I was appointed a deputy district attorney by Mr. Phil S. Van Sice, uh, who was the district attorney in Denver. Mr. Van Sice was the outstanding uh, opponent of the Ku Klux Klan. Up to that time, uh, I had not been approached uh, uh, with reference to affiliating with the Ku Klux Klan and had paid relatively little attention to it because it was just in the beginnings of its uh, uh, ascent to uh, power in uh, state and uh, local political activity at that time as I remember it. Uh, I do uh, know this, that in the beginnings of the uh, build-up of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, a hard core, a small core of uh, uh, people seeking power uh, began to work in the uh, Protestant churches of the city, particularly out in South Denver. The Grand Avenue M.E. Church was a stronghold. The uh, minister of the Grand Avenue uh, M.E. Church, to which I belonged incidentally, uh, was uh, a minister by the name of Jim Thomas. He was an old coal miner, uh, a rough and tumble fighter, and he was a powerful speaker. Uh, he uh, got interested in the Ku Klux Klan and the, I really think, sincerely, the good that could come out of a, an organization dedicated to 
uh, American uh, uh, traditions, and uh, I think he was misled uh, concerning the true purpose of the organization for quite a while, but in any event, he got in pretty deep, and uh, in the area of the Grant Avenue ME Church in South Denver, there was a tremendous stronghold of uh, the Ku Klux. Then it spread over to uh, the Highlands Christian Church on the north side uh, where uh, and radiating out from that area uh, it just began to grow and grow and grow and grow. Uh, the uh, prejudices of people were played upon and uh, all kinds of uh, propaganda was circulated and at the head of it of course uh, I don't know how uh, uh, Dr. Locke was, of course, the instigator in the beginning of the thing. Uh, but the Klan just took hold, that's all. It mushroomed. Uh, people sensing power, they worked through the Republican Party, they took possession of the Republican Party, they worked in the precincts, their leaders attended the caucuses, and uh, beginning at the very bottom, they gained control. Uh, practically 100% of the Republican Party at that time. So now the Klan wants Otto Moore to join. He was part of that Grant Street Church. He says, Emmy, I think that's Methodist. I'm not sure. But there is an incredible church there at Grant Street in Alameda. And he describes how his clergyman got caught up in it. That was really something, don't you think, Jim Miller? You get a powerful speaker influenced by Dr. John Galen Locke. Dr. Locke, an evil doctor, he came from the South with a plan to inflict the Klan on Colorado and damned if he didn't succeed. He took control of the GOP, as you heard about, and then Oata Moore gets caught up in it. Hear him discuss how that happens and how he decided he was on the other side of the coin and that he didn't want to be part of the Klan, even though he was a perfect target since he was one of them, a white Protestant. As I say, uh, it had started and gotten well underway before my attention was particularly directed to it. Uh, and I, uh, uh, it was not until after I uh, became a deputy district attorney under Mr. Van Sice, that uh, overtures were made to me and pressure applied to me to join the Ku Klux Klan. Well, of course, uh, uh, being on the staff of uh, Mr. Van Sice, uh, uh, I had the other side of the coin and <clears throat> paid no attention to these entreaties and endeavored to uh, show my friends who were insisting that I join up with the Klan that they didn't know what they were doing and that they were uh, anything but that which they pretended to be. But So now it gets good. The year 1923 or 24, Philip Van Sys has hired young O. Otto Moore, and one of the tasks he gives him is to go out on West Colfax and park in a way that he can take out license plates when they go up Table Mountain for the Klan rallies every Monday night. Now, you will hear in this bite that O. Otto in 62 calls it North Table Mountain, but I think it's South Table Mountain, especially at the end when you hear the part that they got an interesting confrontation and ended up going south toward Morrison. See what you think. 
after listening to this incredible story by Judge O. Otto Moore. In any event, by 1924 and 25, uh, the Klan had reached a position of terrific uh, political strength. Uh, they, their meetings were at that time held on North Table Mountain, out on West Colfax. There was a narrow paved road uh, on, leading to North Table Mountain. And I think their meetings, if I remember, were on Monday nights. Uh, it was an absolute physical impossibility at any time from 6.30 on a Monday night until as late as 9 o'clock to go but one direction on that highway. Uh, the cars would go out there, two and three abreast, and turn off at a point uh, shortly west of Rock Rest. Uh, and that, of course, the old Rock Rest Inn Tavern uh, was the dividing point where the <clears throat> highway leading over to into Morrison from West Colfax divided and, and uh, the other road went on into Golden. Uh, I had a particularly interesting experience out there one evening. Uh, Mr. Van Sice had a method of determining who belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. He would send a car out uh, and we would park over in the barrel pit way off the road next to the fence and write down the car numbers that went past if it was possible to, do, to write them down that fast. It took two men to write them down and uh, two persons to call the numbers of the cars to those writing them down. And uh, then, of course, you'd have another um, another uh, car down below the turnoff point over to the uh, North Table Mountain. And uh, the cars that uh, showed up on the first list and didn't show up on the second were the cars who had to go with one place. And of course, that was about 90%, 95% of the cars that were on the road that night. One evening, uh, President District Judge Joe Cook, who was at that time a reporter on the Denver Post, uh, with a beat signed to the West Side Court. Uh, he and I were out there writing down these numbers and uh, uh, a motorcycle drove up and uh, uh, wanted to know what we were doing and told us to go on down the road. We were violating the law. Uh, we told him no, that we weren't violating the law. But meanwhile, he had reached in and snatched all the pads out of our hands and we'd lost our numbers. Uh, and uh, the two girls in the car with us, who were secretaries in the office of the district attorney, uh, were somewhat startled and excited and worried about what was happening. But he told us to go on down the highway or we'd get arrested, and I told him to go ahead and arrest us. If we were violating any law, or there's a jail down in Golden, it'd put us in it, and we'd find out who he was. He refused to give his name. And uh, by that time, about eight or ten cars had pulled up and stopped, and uh, uh, people got out and said, what's the matter, Red? What's the trouble? Are you having trouble? And uh, they said, well, there's a couple of fellows here making them a little trouble. And he said, well, let's get them on their way. And uh, they got around our Ford Model T car and ab absolutely lifted it bodily over onto the highway and got on the, and, and uh, cars got behind us and pushed us, uh, oh, maybe a mile and a half up the uh, spur road that leads on into, at that time, led on into Morrison. Uh, Friends of mine reported to me the following day what had actually happened up on the mountain. Uh, Red, whoever he was, uh, on the motorcycle, uh, came in with a bunch of papers and waved them around and they said that they'd got the so-and-sos who were taking down the numbers and uh, sent them merrily on their way. Well, wasn't that something? 
And then the stories get even better from my perspective. Once in the Denver DA's office, I had to prosecute a guy named Greg Bradley four times for the same first-degree murder. Two of the trials were 11 to 1 for guilty. One was a mistrial because my star witness went nuts in part in the McDonald's at 16th and Court. A lot of strange things happened there. But the bottom line is on the fourth try, Greg Bradley was convicted of first-degree murder, horrible domestic violence murder. And there's O. Otto Moore, who gets assigned a rape case involving some Denver businessman named R.O. Samples. His problem, the case is assigned to Judge Clarence Morley, who is a grand cyclops of the KKK. And he was going to protect samples. Listen to this story. As a deputy district attorney, I frequently ran into numerous instances of tremendous consequence in the ability with which the Ku Klux Klan controlled what went on in the courts. That time, uh, Morley was a district judge. Uh, he subsequently, at the next election, was elected governor of the state under Klan leadership. And as a prosecuting attorney, uh, trying cases before him, I felt the brunt of his attack on the uh, all the proceedings of the district attorney who was uh, the op opponent of the Ku Klux Klan. In many, many, many ways, he would attempt to belittle and without regard to the justice of the case involved, uh, uh, attempt to discredit the office of the district attorney because of the, the activities of Mr. Van Sice. One case in particular comes to my attention. It was the case of R.O. Samples. R.O. Samples was a man who was accused of, of rape, forcible rape. A very, very strong case uh, was made against him. Uh, the prosecuting witness came to my office. I personally filed the information, and prepared it, and took her statement concerning the events that, uh, that uh, led to the filing of the charge. Uh, she was a young woman, I would say 21 or 22 years of age. I hired as a secretary and was told to come down the office. They had to work at night, and uh, uh, this very, very aggravated case of uh, forcible rape was committed by this man. Uh, he entered his, uh, that is, the, he entered a plea of not guilty, and at that time, apparently, it wasn't recognized. The, the judge didn't recognize who he was or, uh, or what strings he could pull, but in any event, uh, the young woman inquired of me as to what she would have to do to dispose of this case, and I told her she would have to take the stand, and the man had entered a plea of not guilty, and that it would be necessary for us to have a jury trial, and that she would have to take the stand and tell her what had happened to her, and uh, identify the exhibits, her torn clothing, and all that kind of thing. And she threw up her hands in horror and said that she didn't see how it would be possible for her to undergo such an ordeal, and, and uh, said she wouldn't do it. Um, I told her I was powerless to dismiss the case and that it couldn't be done without the consent of the judge. So I took her and went with her up to the chambers of Governor Morley, or of Judge Morley, and explained to her what her wishes were in the matter, that she couldn't possibly go through with this proposition, and uh, uh, the judge talked to her for 45 minutes, it's such a matter, at least 45 minutes, 
about the whole thing and gave her a tremendous lecture on the motherhood and the uh, womanhood and the protection of womanhood and all that kind of thing and she finally consented to go ahead and, and proceed with the case. Well, a few days thereafter, it was turned out that this man Sampras was some sort of a cyclops or uh, lieutenant of some kind in the Ku Klux Klan organization and the uh, pressure began to build up uh, to do something for this man uh, accused of this crime. Uh, Governor, uh, the uh, judge called me up to his chambers and said that he'd been considering uh, this matter, can you stop this? Governor Moore, or, um, the judge uh, had given her this long, long talk, of course, but then uh, when he developed who this fellow was, uh, he called uh, me up to his office and uh, uh, explained to me that he'd been considering the uh, position of this young woman and that uh, he had. Uh, on mature consideration, he had concluded that the thing to do would be to grant her request. So I called her and uh, told her that the judge had been reconsidered and wanted to talk to her. So we went up and talked to the judge again, and he explained to her that he'd be very glad, he thought, to grant the request that she had made in this matter and that uh, uh, and authorized the dismissal of the action and enter the order. And she told him that uh, she had become convinced that he had uh, sold her such a good bill of goods in the long conference with him that she made up her mind that in the interest of protection of other women that she would go ahead with this case. Well, we tried the case. And never in my life did I take such a whipping uh, from a trial judge who belittled every objection that I made, who sustained every objection that the other side made, uh, who poured cold water all over the prosecution from the moment the case started. But notwithstanding all of this activity, this man was convicted by that jury because no effort at that time had been made to fix the jury by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and as is customary in all criminal cases, a motion for a new trial was filed, uh, asking that the court grant a new trial because of errors in the record and so forth. And this judge who had previously indicated that he would uh, he would uh, not, under any circumstances, consent to the thing, and given all this build-up about womanhood, uh, sat there on that bench and uh, said that, uh, after all, he was a 13th juror, and he couldn't find it uh, in his conscience to believe the story of the prosecuting witness, and uh, since he was, in a measure and in a sense, a 13th juror, notwithstanding the verdict uh, in the case, that he would, uh, he would have to grant a new trial. So a new trial was granted, and then the boys got busy, uh, and uh, by that time, all juries were being, the jury lists, the jury commissioner being a Ku Kluxer himself, the jury lists were made up in the office of Dr. Locke down on Glenarm Street, and nobody uh, that didn't uh, pass the approval of the Ku Klux Klan hierarchy uh, was ever permitted to become a juror. Uh, and uh, we tried the case again. But notwithstanding the fact that uh, the, the, they had a fixed jury uh, and a Ku Klux jury, uh, at the subsequent trial, uh, there was a hung jury. Uh, and uh, uh, so we tried the case a third time, and again the same thing took place. There was a fixed jury, a strictly Ku Klux jury, but they they couldn't get enough of them there to go for the story of this, uh, the uh, the defense in the case, and there was another hung jury, and by that time the young lady threw up her hands in disgust, and uh, so Mr. R.O. Sampras was discharged, and 
custody and a rapist was turned loose on the public. So then Judge Moore talks about Ben Stapleton, the mayor of Denver, a Democrat, and the Klan got their hooks into Ben Stapleton. When he first won in 23, Ben Stapleton pretended not to be part of the Klan, but then there was a recall and he gave in to them. Anyway, Ben Stapleton also arranged the Good Friday raids. Interesting, a Catholic event, Good Friday raids. Listen to Judge Moore talk about Ben Stapleton and the protection racket that the Klan had going in Denver, Colorado. And then in 1925, <clears throat> Mayor Stapleton uh, pulled off what he called the Good Friday Raids. He'd had a bunch of uh, Secret Service men uh, building up cases against bootleggers and gambling and whorehouses and uh, all of that type of thing for months there to four. And on Good Friday, 1925, uh, wholesale arrests were made. Every patrol wagon and, and uh, police vehicle in the city was hauling people over to the county jail. and. Uh, all of that mess was turned over to me to straighten out on behalf of the district attorney's office and to prosecute cases that grew out of it. Among other things, there was <clears throat> it developed that uh, there had been some corruption on the police department in the matter of accepting bribes from <laughs> the bootlegger ring in the city and uh, grand jury uh, uh, in which, which uh, uh, investigated the matter returned some indictments against a number of police officers. Uh, it wasn't felt by, uh, and all of these men were Ku Kluxers as far as that's concerned. Uh, the first man to be tried was named Sam Moore. He was the less guilty of any of them. He was a little petty uh, uh, briber, taking eight and ten dollars a week to let the pocket bootleggers go and not to bother them. And uh, it wasn't thought that anybody would ever convict him on any charge, so nothing was done in advance to see to it that he didn't get convicted. And uh, he was tried. I personally tried the case, and he was convicted of uh, bribery. And after that, it was determined that uh, something would have to be done. And so the other accused persons, uh, the Klansmen, there was Roy Tangy, Jim Kilpatrick, Basher, um, Olson and several others in this particular case that I'm referring to they took 40 cases of whiskey against a woman and had her find $100 for possession of the whiskey and the liquor was ordered destroyed they took the whiskey uh, the 40 cases of whiskey and sold it to a bootlegger named Max Cohen for $40 a case we filed a case against them for larceny as Bailey of this whiskey and uh, uh, Charlie Roberts, uh, a leading Ku Klux uh, uh, lawyer, uh, was uh, to defend them, and Henry Bray, who was a, another Ku Klux judge who was elected to the district bench at that time, was on the bench. And uh, a very, very interesting thing took place in that particular case. Mr. Uh, uh, Johnson. The reporter on the Rocky Mountain News called at the office of John Galen Locke to get a story uh, about a big barbecue they were going to have up on the mountain, and uh, else out the cotton mills. I've forgotten where the barbecue was going to be held. But in any event, he had to wait outside the doctor's office, and there was a whole uh, group of people inside, and the transom was open, and he heard what was going on in there. 
he recognized the voice of Judge Bray because he had his mouth full of tobacco half the time and, and everybody knew Judge Bray's voice a mile away as far as that concerned. And uh, Dr. Locke was telling Charlie Roberts, the lawyer, and Judge Bray, the judge, how that case was going to be handled and what was going to become of it. The four defendants in the case were present and uh, 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 Dr. Locke uh, told uh, Charlie Roberts that as soon as I made uh, as soon as the district attorney made his opening statement in the case, that you get off your fanny, he said, and uh, make this motion. You tell the judge that the, uh, that the opening statement of the, of the district attorney doesn't state a claim against anybody, that there's no property right in, in whiskey uh, under the statute, and that uh, uh, it can't be uh, the subject of larceny because it's a, it's a contraband article, and uh, the doctor said to Judge Bray, says, and when you hear that motion made, you sustain that motion. And one of the officers named uh, Poucher made the statement that uh, uh, if that so-and-so more ever convicted him, uh, got a judgment against him in the same penitentiary, he'd, he'd empty his uh, 45 into his guts. Well, that was very interesting news, so uh, uh, my friend Johnson, the news reporter, ran right over to the courthouse and told me what was going on up in John Galen Locke's office, and so I went out and sat on the front of the, the steps, and. Uh, first thing I knew in about 10-15 minutes or such a matter after Johnson made the report to me why these cars came along. Here came Kilpatrick, Poucher, Basher, and Olson in one car and Judge Bray another car and they walked in. How do you do Mr. Moore? How do you do Mr. Moore? And I told Poucher, I said, well you better get your uh, you better get your, uh, your, uh, your 45 loaded because I'm sure as hell going to convict you. He says, I understand you just got through saying that you were going to empty your guts and uh, your, your uh, gun in my guts if I uh, prosecuted you and convict you of, an, of a crime. He said, why, 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 what are you talking about? I said, I heard you. I said, they got big ears. They go clear up to Glenarm Street into Doc Locke's office. Well, we went in the, uh, went ahead and the next, and in a week later, the case came on for trial. I made the, uh, a very, very careful, um, uh, opening statement of my case in anticipation of what was to follow and meanwhile I had prepared the law and was able to argue the question uh, which was wholly untenable. Uh, when I sat down and uh, Charlie Roberts got up and made the statement that the, we should dismiss the case and I told the court that I was prepared to present the law applicable to the case and uh, uh, made the argument and showed him where uh, there wasn't a bit of law to sustain any such contention and there was all the law in every state in the union that had ever been decided on the question was uh, in opposition there too. Uh, Judge Bray emptied his mouth of tobacco three or four times and hemmed and hawed and said well that he wasn't sure those statutes were in conformity with that which we had and uh, uh, so he, he felt the motion was good and he was going to sustain the motion. So. Uh, thereupon, we, uh, the defendants were discharged. This didn't happen until after the jury was selected, so they had jeopardy and couldn't be tried again. And that, uh, that case fell by the board. But we took it to the Supreme Court. Uh, I, brought the case. I brought the case up here. The citation of the case is 79 Colorado Reports at page 303. And uh, this is what the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado had to say about that. The construction given the act in question by the trial court is fraught with such momentous and disastrous results that we would need go no further than invoke against it the fundamental rule that absurd interpretations will not be given statutes when reasonable ones may be resorted to. A reasonable one lies here at hand. 
This law does not declare that there shall be no property rights in the thing mentioned, but there shall be no property rights in them used in or kept for the purpose of violating any of the provisions of this act. When the city, through these officers, acting in their official capacity, lawfully seized this liquor, the condition mentioned was terminated. And of course that was the law everywhere uh, in the country. And the judge said that if the ruling of uh, Judge Bray, the Klan judge, uh, brought about for the purpose, sole purpose of turning loose four leading Klansmen uh, on a violation of, a, of, from a charge of violating a very, very important uh, public trust. That if that were to be said, the Supreme Court said, uh, if that were to be upheld, why the good old rule, a simple plan that they should ha take who have the power and they should keep who can would be the only law that was applicable to anything. Well, those two instances in my personal experience uh, are only illustrative of dozens of others that could be given uh, uh, the way the Ku Klux Klan functioned in the city and county of Denver in its effort to uh, rule absolutely with an iron hand and uh, a dictatorial hand uh, without regard to, to what the facts were, what the law was, or anything else. Anyway, Colorado was divided. Civic organizations were divided. Judge Moore lived through it, and he describes it beautifully here. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, from 1923 until 1926, uh, created more havoc in fraternal organizations such as the, like the Masonic Lodges and the, and the Protestant churches than any influence that ever, that ever it, it divided these organizations right down the middle. There were many of us. I personally am a member of the Masonic Order. Uh, and uh, while I wasn't at that time, I know uh, after having affiliated with the organization uh, from those who, who look back upon their activity in the Klan ranks as, as, as a disgraceful thing in their own experience. Some of our best men got sucked into this thing and uh, found out afterward just how badly they had been uh, misled. Uh, these uh, hoods and robes that were uh, sold uh, for a rather substantial price uh, added to the coffers of the of the clan. Uh, their meetings were uh, and public parades uh, would would uh, in, in these in this regalia. Uh, were quite a spectacular uh, sight, and they were uh, they filled the heart of the Negro and uh, uh, the businessman uh, of non uh, 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 non Ku Klux Ku Klux connection with uh, with fear. They refused to uh, to patronize anybody who didn't belong to the Klan. The economic boycotting was fantastic. Uh, and many, many people were forced out of business because they stood their ground and refused to have anything to do with them. They immediately went on the blacklist and, uh, for instance, there was a cigar put out uh, called a Cyana Cigar. Uh, Cyana meaning, Catholics, you are not Americans. Uh, and these, uh, Dale, uh, Dale Dean, yes, uh, the clerk of the district court, uh, the judges of the district court were uh, Ku Kluxers are supported by the Ku Klux. You couldn't get elected to anything in the city and county of Denver unless you were affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan or had their blessing. And of course, this was a disgraceful thing. Does it remind you of a current time? How divided are we now? How do these kind of things end? How do people who are caught up in bigotries, how do they come to be shoved to the background and aside? 
How did Denver and Colorado survive the Klan? Oh, Otto Moore explains how the Klan finally collapsed in Denver and Colorado. Uh, gradually, uh, the corruption uh, and the, uh, the, the base motives of the Ku Klux began more and more and more to uh, become uh, common knowledge and uh, good men in the Klan uh, dropped their connection with it because they began to find out that it wasn't the thing that they was cracked up to be and as was sold to them to begin with. And now it gets good with DA politics. I know a little about that. When Dale Tooley, who hired O. Otto Moore, ran for Denver mayor, we all got caught up in the politics. Then Norm Early tried to become mayor. Later, Bill Ritter had aspirations, and he actually became governor of Colorado. But after Phil Van Sice was tough on the Klan, he had no chance of the Republicans renominating him or electing him. So O. Otto tried to keep Denver clean. He went to work for a guy named Foster Klein. Let Judge Moore describe it. The result was that Foster Klein was elected, and he was uh, not a Klansman, not uh, not uh, uh, particularly interested in the Ku Klux Klan. And Mr. Uh, Jim Thomas, I being a member of his church, went to Foster Klein and told him, as uh, in, in uh, I, I learned this afterwards, that uh, uh, one thing that he had indefinitely in mind uh, when uh, he gave his consent to uh, to support Foster Klein for a district attorney was that he continue me on the staff of the district attorney if I wanted to stay. So Mr. Klein consented that I should remain on his staff if I cared to, and I did care to because I wanted to find out some more about this stuff and get a little more experience before I plunged into the private practice. In any event, ere long, uh, it became conclusive that uh, the Ku Klux was, uh, was uh, uh, arranging these jury lists. And uh, I've forgotten just what it was, but uh, there was some, some contempt of court, something or other, uh, uh, grew out of the uh, the raid that we conducted on John Gaynon Locke's office. We seized his typewriter, got the list, the jury list, as it was prepared and, and on file in the jury commissioner's office. And of course, a typewriter uh, is uh, will convict you if you've got uh, of, of preparing a. It can be established definitely on those old typewriters. Uh, whether an instrument, a jury list, was prepared on that typewriter or whether it wasn't. It's just like handwriting or anything else. There's certain characteristics that are not the same, like fingerprints. And, uh, of course, we took the typewriters out of uh, uh, John Galen Locke's office and we identified every typewriter that had printed every page of every jury list that there was in the jury commissioner's office, meaning, of course, that nobody was in the, on any jury deciding any of the controversies that come into the course except the Ku Klux Klan members. Uh, and. Uh, it was always possible, uh, without regard to the justice of the case, to have a hung jury if that's the way they, uh, if it couldn't be uh, decided the way they wanted it to be decided. Gosh, I thought I lived through some interesting Denver political races, but how about when Phil Van Sice, trying to hold on to power, had his event at the Auditorium Arena where he was heckled into a premature end of his career by the Klan? and people who wouldn't even let him talk. Another incident. Uh, for the first time in my life, I became a Republican in the, in the 1925. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Mr. Van Sice 
decided that uh, that he needed to put into the field a ticket against the uh, in the Republican primary a ticket against the Klan ticket, and it took uh, a certain number of signers, a hundred signers, if I remember correctly, uh, to uh, to create this new Constitutionalist Party, as we called ourselves. Hmm? They call that, I believe, the visible government. Well, the visible government is something or other. In any event, I forgot just what it was, but I was one of the signers, uh, uh, normally a Democrat, uh, theretofore and thereafter. At that one election, I became uh, uh, a, a member of this group to put in a uh, an opposition ticket uh, to the uh, Republican Ku Klux ticket, and, uh, of course, we took a terrific beating. Uh, in support of that organization, Mr. Van Sice conducted a mass meeting at the auditorium. It was highly advertised, and of course, uh, uh, the this was, excuse me for interrupting, this was about August 24, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, was yes, it must have been, it must have been. Uh, in any event, uh, the, at the meeting down there in the auditorium, uh, the Ku Kluxers uh, marched in and filled up all the seats in the, on, the, on the ground floor before anybody else could come or did come. There was no place for anybody to sit that, that wasn't a clucker. And uh, Mr. Van Sice started to make his speech. And uh, every time he'd start to say a word, why there'd be a hoots and howls, you couldn't hear a word. And they, that went on for a couple hours down there. Uh, and uh, while Mr. Van Sice finally spoke that which he had to say right in their presence, uh, no one heard it past the first row because it was a physical impossibility for anybody to hear anything. And of course, there were no, there was no radio or broadcasting of anything. Uh, but it was a wild, wild, wild night. And Mr. Van Sice uh, was chased that night on the way home. Uh, guns were drawn upon him, uh, but he managed to escape and get to his home without without incident uh, or harm. Sadly, the Denver police were also corrupted. That's a big worry right now with Donald Trump and Trumpism. May it please fade away because he was getting his hooks into the cops and that was to our detriment. There was a time when Denver cops were caught up with the Klan. Here's how Judge Moore described it. The chief of police, Mr. Candlish, I was a notorious Klansman. Uh, the Ku Klux members of the police and the good Irish policemen were having a terrible time. They were relegated to the beats in the uh, way outside, and uh, seniority meant nothing, rank meant nothing. Uh, in order to get anywhere on the police department, you had to be a Klansman, and the Klansmen were enriching themselves uh, in all manner of uh, uh, protection of organized crime and organized vice in this city, without any question on earth. What was the Klan at its core? Just a powerful organization based on bigotry. Played on that. People throughout time immemorial have had that happen. What can we do to guard against it? I don't know. It was a powerful organization at that time. And uh, while it, it's, uh, it was based upon discriminations and uh, against minority groups, the Negro and the Catholic and the Jew, uh, there are a lot of people who uh, uh, who fall for that kind of thing. There are many, there there are far far fewer now who would be uh, be drawn into a thing of that kind because of broader conception of tolerance and cooperative uh, uh, give and take in in matters that doesn't have anything to do with uh, 
uh, with governmental affairs, or shouldn't have. But then, he, at that time, it was it was it was a popular subject. It was the uh, the Catholics were were far uh, less numerous than than they are at this time. The Jewish people were uh, more or less a ghetto type people, uh, and the, the Negro was uh, having a struggle to to lift himself up by his bootstraps, and they preyed upon these people and just scared them to death, really. Uh, uh, they applied economic pressures that were uh, fantastic, and uh, as, as I say, it was uh, many, many, many bankruptcies were caused by uh, the uh, ostracizing of uh, people uh, in, the, in those groups, uh, and the boycotting that went on, and the pressures that were were, were raised against clan members to support only clan uh, mem- uh, members in, in all the purchasing. And why did these bigoted points of view arise in? Republican circles, almost exclusively. With Val Golightly, we talk about George Wallace, who was a Democrat. A lot of bigots were Democrats in the South because they hated Lincoln, who was a Republican. But now all those Wallace Democrats are part of the base for one Donald Trump, who still wants power back. Thank God we defeated him. How does the Republican Party come to embrace the Klan and organizations like that. Judge Moore had his theories back in 1962. There was a substantial, there was a substantial uh, undercurrent of revolt against this uh, seizure of power, and of course, but uh, no one, no one dared stick his head up uh, and lead it, except Van Sy's. He was, he was, he was the mouthpiece of the opposition. But everybody was afraid of their life to be. You'd, you'd have a red. You'd have a cross burning on your lawn. They were burning all over town, uh, and these uh, mobs of, uh, uh, of hooded people showing up in your neighborhood and burning a cross on your lawn, scaring you to death. And few people can take that kind of thing happening every night all over town. Yeah, it would be a little bit. Well, why? Yeah, one thing I'm curious about: Why did the Ku Klux Klan choose the Republican Party? Why did they try the Democrat Party? Well, because the Democratic Party traditionally uh, has a far greater number of Jewish people and Catholic people in it than uh, per capita than the Republican Party. Less opposition there. The Republican Party traditionally is is a Protestant party, uh, predominantly. Uh, I would say even now, perhaps forty percent of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the uh, makeup of the Democratic Party are made up of Catholic people. The, uh, the Irish people are 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 battlers. They love a fight, and uh, uh, they, uh, the Democratic Party provides them with an arena and uh, the the Democratic organization in the state. I would say is made up of you take our district captains and precinct committee men and women, all that kind of thing. Probably twenty five thirty percent Catholic anyway, all over the state. Well, then, and that isn't true in the Republican Party. Uh, very, very, very few uh, Catholics are in the Republican Party, uh, and very, very, very few Jewish people are in the Republican Party. Uh, so that's uh, they took the party where they would have the least opposition to take over. That's all. And here's where I get a kick out of it. First of all, I like to hear about South Side, North Side, East Side, West Side of Denver. My dad went to West. My mom went to East. My uncle went to North. I went to GW. I know a lot of people from South High, like Judge Moore, who I got to know. The payoff to my story, by the way, is one day, while you heard in my Belgo Lightly interview, Judge Moore confronted me loudly 
so other people could hear it. Silverman, get over here. What's the problem, Judge? If it wasn't for your grandfather, I would have been number one at Westminster Law School. I got a kick out of that. I get a kick out of hearing Judge Moore, who is probably about my age, when he sat down in 62 and discussed, again, Denver history and domination of the North Side and all the city officials and judges involved with the Klan, including a guy named Ben Stapleton, the mayor. And Judge Moore just pondered how remarkable it was that Ben Stapleton did not get smeared with the Klan reputation when he was oh so involved. He escaped. Judge Moore did not live to see what happened with the Stapleton neighborhood being renamed and the Stapleton name being disgraced. Listen to what he had to say in 62. Say the picture would be one man trying to control or one man in a group of very devoted, ardent followers trying to control. I would would say uh, not more than a dozen men doing the bidding of one man. In other words, it all went back to Locke. Locke Absolutely. I would say so. He was he was the he was the he was the grand uh, what was it they call him Kriegel no Cyclops they had Kriegels and Cyclopses and dragon. grand dragon yeah the dragon he was the dragon he was the dragon and they had uh, uh, the uh, uh, lesser lights were called Cyclopses and Kriegels and <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> And part of it was a charismatic, organized, ruthless leader in Denver, Colorado, named Dr. John Galen Locke, the Grand Dragon of the Klan. One man can bring a lot of destruction, trigger impulses in people that are evil. Thank God for good people like the great O. Otto Moore. What an honor to know him from generation to generation. Thank you for listening. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that i have a friend who's really really good and really really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite just the finances don't make sense to them so you don't want to pick that type of person you want to pick somebody who can understand finances you want to pick somebody who's trustworthy who will carry out your decisions and if you can do it you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Once again, our troubadour has the perfect song. It's February. Normally, people would be getting ready for Mardi Gras. Where does that take place? New Orleans, Louisiana. It's also Black History Month. My special guest, my dear old friend, Bell, go lightly. Now, what is the perfect song? 
Dave Gunders always has one. Troubadour, come down, Miss Lizzie. It's an instant classic. Way to go. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, Miss Lizzie is a, about a love-struck small farmer living near New Orleans in the year 1799 who falls in love with a hooker, shall we say. A hooker. And uh, he sees the good side of her. Wow, is that Miss Lizzie? When he's yelling, come down, Miss Lizzie, where is she? Up in the brothel and... He's going to get liquored up and have well, his way with her, or is it deeper than that? My God. No, he's kind of crooning. He's down on the street level, and he's calling. He's down by a gaslit lamppost there, and he's looking up at her balcony and asking her to come down because he's got a pocket full of money. He's just sold his harvest at market, and he's feeling good, and he's waiting for her. Right. I know what he sold, corn and okra. I don't think I've ever heard okra used so well, and then he's got a little cabin he wants to show her. I want to show you rhymes with okra. That's beautiful, Dave Gunders. He built a cabin. He wants to show it to her. He's in love with her. He's also in lust. And it's also about a, you know, a young country. The year takes place. It's 1799. New Orleans then, I, I've been reading a book about New Orleans, having you know visited many times and been taken with the city myself. And, you know, around that time, there were so many different kinds of people, all walks of life coming into the area, pirates and soldiers and, you know, escaped slaves and freemen and, you know, frontiersmen about to take off towards the West. It was a real melting pot and a very vital place in our young country. What is it about you in New Orleans? Well, I just love, I love the, you know, I, I never knew why it was called the Big Easy until I went there. It's just like you, you can go to New Orleans and things just kind of fall into place. You know, there's a seat at the bar. There's a place at your favorite restaurant. You never have to wait too long. It's always worthwhile. The music is pouring out of the clubs. And I always go for Jazz Fest, which is at the end of April. And so there's, there's just so much to do. It's just a very gracious, welcoming city. And then you wrote about Miss Lizzie. With love and affection, you called her a hooker. I think that's harsh because you treat her more tenderly in the song. Well. And you identify her as a Creole woman. What is a Creole? You know, I wish I could say definitively I knew what Creole was, but I think it's a mixture of the Black ancestors of slaves or immigrants from, from uh, the Caribbean, that area, and, and probably the, the indigenous uh, Indian population of the area. I think that's right. A Creole is a mixture of people. And it can involve Native Americans or Anglos. Here's how Wikipedia defines it. Creole people are ethnic groups which originated during the colonial era from colonialism, mainly between West Africans, as well as some other people born in the colonies, such as French, Spanish, and Native American peoples. This process is known as Creolization. Creole peoples vary from different race. The development of Creole language is sometimes mistakenly attributed to the emergence of Creole ethnic identities. However, they are independent developments. So I know you like Creole music and you see Creole people down in New Orleans and darned if you didn't make Miss Lizzie a Creole lady that you lusted for. I know these songs are about you. Anyway, <laughs> I got a kick when you call her a full-blooded Creole. 
Isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Perhaps. Perhaps it is. I didn't mean it in the context of, of pure blood. What I meant was full-blooded, uh, you know, a lusty woman and perhaps a woman who, you know, lived life to the fullest. It sounds like the protagonist of your song, you, you're the guy who's full-blooded thinking about getting together with Miss Lizzie. It's lustful, isn't it? Especially for that era. But I guess those desires existed in 1799. Well, you know, New Orleans has always had a reputation for that, and I think it probably lives there still. But, you know, in this case, the protagonist is interested in more than just just her sexual wares. She has captured his heart. He wants to marry her. He wants to take her to his farm and show her what he's done. He's built a cabin, and uh, he's just full of love for her. He's also full of love for his young country. The last verse, you know, talks about that. He's a patriot. And it's a beautiful song, and your lyrics are fantastic. I don't know that anybody's ever better rhymed the word mule. This guy has a mule as well. Don't sell him short. And rhyming the word beautiful, because it's a beautiful song. Let's let everybody give a listen to it. Dedicated to Black History Month from your troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thank you, troubadour. Town on a Sunday, farmers market. I sell my harvest if I can. I ran aground, but I know one day this rising tide is bound to lift me high again. Wild night, New Orleans, liquors flowing, and the faces they all shine. Like glow, feel the world unfold. Seventeen ninety-nine. Yellow moon, muddy water, a hard life. I wouldn't trade for another. I work my fields as a, a free man under the sun, dreaming of my girl again. I sit alone and cry She's the one Lights up my Southern skies In her arms I feel Alive My full-blooded Creole Lady of the night So come down Miss Lizzie Come down I need you It's the end of the day I'm in town So Miss Lizzie My breath away I got a flatboat I got a mule I got a passion For all things beautiful Never got no education But I'd give my blood For this young nation I grow corn I grow okra I really like to show you Lizzie 
So Miss Lizzie, come down I need you in my arms again Come down Miss Lizzie, come down I'm here and it's the end of the day I'm in town So Miss Lizzie, come down Come take my breath away Wow, we are living through consequential times. When I was at Colorado College, I studied relations between then the Soviet Union and America. I'm not sure why. Maybe because my ancestors came from the Pale of Settlement, the area where Jews were allowed to live peaceably for centuries until, of course, they were not pogroms happened, etc. And then we found America, which has been a great place. Alexei Navalny is a Russian. He's lived under Putin and he's sick of it. He's an opponent of Vladimir Putin and for his trouble, he has been prosecuted and poisoned. And just the other day, he was sentenced to several years in prison. And he had this to say in Russian, Here's the English translation. I would like to begin by discussing the legal issues here, which seems to me to be paramount and a bit overlooked in this discussion. There are two people sitting right there, and one of them is saying, let's lock up Navalny because he showed up to meet with his parole officers on Mondays, not Thursdays. And the other says, Let's lock up Navalny because he didn't show up immediately after coming out of his coma. But I would like everyone to remember that the essence of this trial is to lock me up over a case in which I was already exonerated, a case that's already been recognized as fabricated. If we look at the criminal statute, Your Honor, I hope you've already done this once or twice we'll see that the European Court of Human Rights is part of the Russian justice system and its decisions are binding. The Russian Federation halfway acknowledged this ruling and even paid me compensation here. Despite this, my brother spent three and a half years in prison because of this same case. I spent an entire year under house arrest for this same case. Let's do a little math. The verdict was in 2014. It's 2021 now, and I'm still being prosecuted for this. Why this case exactly? There's a reason, and it's not because there's some shortage of criminal charges against me. Somebody wanted me arrested the moment I crossed the border after returning from Germany. The explanation is one man's hatred and fear, one man hiding in a bunker. I mortally offended him by surviving. I survived thanks to good people, thanks to pilots and doctors. And then I committed an even more serious offense. I didn't run and hide. Then something truly terrifying happened. 
I participated in the investigation of my own poisoning. And we proved, in fact, that Putin, using Russia's Federal Security Service, was responsible for this attempted murder. And that's driving this thieving little man in his bunker out of his mind. He's simply going insane as a result. There's no popularity ratings, no massive support. There's none of that, because it turns out that dealing with a political opponent who has no access to television and no political party merely requires trying to kill him with a chemical weapon. So, of course, he's losing his mind over this, because everyone was convinced that he's just a bureaucrat who was accidentally appointed to his position. He's never participated in any debates or campaigned in an election. Murder is the only way he knows how to fight. He'll go down in history as nothing but a poisoner. We all remember Alexander the Liberator and Yaroslav the Wise, while now we'll have Vladimir the Underpants Poisoner. I'm standing here guarded by the police and the National Guard is out there with half of Moscow cordoned off. All this because that small man in a bunker is losing his mind. He's losing his mind because we proved and demonstrated that he isn't buried in geopolitics. He's busy holding meetings where he decides how to steal politicians' underpants and smear them with chemical weapons to try to kill them. The main thing in this whole trial isn't what happens to me. Locking me up isn't difficult. What matters most is why this is happening. This is happening to intimidate large numbers of people. They're imprisoning one person to frighten millions. We've got 20 million people living below the poverty line. We have tens of millions of people living without the slightest prospects for the future. Life is bearable in Moscow, but travel 100 kilometers in any direction and everything's a mess. Our whole country is living in this mess without the slightest prospects, earning 20,000 rubles, $265 a month. And they're all silent. They try to shut people up with these show trials. Lock up this one to scare millions more. One person takes to the streets and they lock up another five people to scare 15 million more. I hope very much that people won't look at this trial as a signal that they should be more afraid. This isn't a demonstration of strength. It's a show of weakness. You can't lock up millions and hundreds of thousands of people. I hope very much that people will realize this, and they will, because you can't lock up the whole country. The only thing growing in Russia is the number of billionaires. Everything else is declining. I'm locked up in a prison cell, and all I hear about on TV is that butter is getting more expensive. The price of eggs is rising. You've deprived these people of a future. Everything I'm saying now reflects my attitude toward the performance you've staged here. This is what happened when lawlessness and tyranny become the essence of a political system, and it's horrifying. But it's even worse when lawlessness and tyranny pose as state prosecutors 
and dress up in judges' robes. It's the duty of every person to defy you and to defy such laws. I am fighting as best I can, and I will continue to do so, despite the fact that I'm now under the control of people who love to smear everything with chemical weapons. My life isn't worth two cents, but I will do everything I can so that the law prevails. And I salute and thank the staff at the Anti-Corruption Foundation who have been arrested and all the honest people across the country who aren't afraid and who take to the streets because they have the same rights as you. This country belongs to them just as it does to you and everyone else. We demand proper justice, decent treatment, participation in elections, and participation in the distribution of the national wealth. Yes, we demand all this. I want to say that there are many good things in Russia now. The very best are the people who aren't afraid, people who don't look the other way, who will never hand our country over to a bunch of corrupt officials who want to trade it for palaces, vineyards, and aqua discos. I demand my immediate release and the release of all political prisoners. I do not recognize your performance here. It's a deception and completely illegal. Wow, what words, courageous words from a man about to be locked up, Alexei Navalny. What will this weekend bring in Russia? How long will Putin survive? Isn't he responsible for murder after murder, including the attempted murder of Navalny? How interesting, this same time Donald Trump is coming to trial on the charge of inciting an insurrection, which caused at least five people to die and lots more to be maimed. World history, we are living through it. We are all over it. Stay tuned. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at creeksilvermanshow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do, and my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do, and I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107 for the best possible deal. Tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. 
gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887, or online at mblawllc.com. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Valvita, go lightly. It's Craig. (laughs) Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm wonderful now that I'm speaking with you. This is so delightful to catch up with you. I know. (laughs) I know. You know what you've been on my mind for so, so long. I was so flattered that you mentioned me among your many honors at the University of Colorado School of Law. You saw fit (laughs) to write down that you went to school with me and our incredible class. But I always reference you. The five of us, we will always be together at that Mm -hmm. moment in history, don't you think? Yes, I think forever. I think we're forever connected, Craig. Well, let's dive back deep because. Velveeta, go lightly. I did not realize when I first met you what a powerhouse you were going to be, such an accomplished attorney. And now in the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, my goodness, how many more Hall of Fames? How many in total? That is the one Hall of Fame, but I've had several recognitions. Tell everybody about that. Well, one of my most recent recognitions was to be honored as the Mary Lothrop Trailblazer Award winner for 2020. And that was bestowed by the Colorado Women's Bar Association. And I was really just honored and felt privileged to have received that recognition because it follows that of my career-long mentor, who we share, Brooke Wanneke. And it just was extremely special in that light. So that's the one I'd like to mention. I don't really feel the need to mention others, Craig. Well, how about the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame? That's kind of cool. (laughs) Yes, it is. And again, I felt extremely honored. And I was at one point asked by someone during an interview, well, what makes you proud? And my response is always that I tried my darndest 
not to have pride because I know that it is not about me. It is about my Heavenly Father who has guided me and strengthened me all along the way. And so I always give honor to the highest power. But I responded after saying that to the effect that I am so honored to be someone who other young black girls, women, and women in general can look at and say, well, if she could do the things she's done, then I can too. And just be in a position where I am encouraging, I'm serving as a role model. That is truly what makes me most happy about being recognized in the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, Craig. Well, let's talk about your story and why you won that Trailblazer Award. And we'll get up to Brooke Wanneke, who has a common, <laughs> quote, mother to the both of us. And yes. she was our mentor, no doubt about it. But let's go back to when you were born, because it had to be a little after me. We were in law school together, but weren't you one of the youngest in our class at CU Law School? Tell everybody where you grew up and about your education. Well, I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the home of the Crimson Tide. For those who are familiar with football, college football. And I grew up in a home that had been in my family for two generations. It was built by my father and his father. And were they both named Go Lightly? Because I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Stop me if you have, though. Velveeta Go Lightly is not an everyday name. How did you acquire that? Is Go Lightly the family name? And how did they come to name you Velveeta? Well, what happened is that, first of all, insofar as the surname is concerned, my great-grandfather married a full-blooded Cherokee woman. And he did not want to be placed in a position where he was carrying a name that had been given to his father during slavery. And so he adopted my great-grandmother's name, Golightly. So that's how that came to be. Well, that's cool. That's an act of freedom. Get rid of your slave name and go with a Native American name. Absolutely. And my first name is actually pronounced Velveta phonetically, but I've always responded to Velveta because that's the way most of my teachers pronounced it. And as you know, Craig, my nickname is Vet. So in deference to my teachers and others, I have just always responded to Velvita, and I like the name. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't know if you remember, but when Dale Tooley 
who was also a mentor of ours, was leaving his office to run for mayor. He had this really nice dinner, and he said something really nice about each one of us. And I remember when he got to my name, he said something to the effect, Val, someday your name will be a household known name. And everybody started laughing and, you know, I laughed too, but I really didn't understand what that meant. And it wasn't until about five, six years later that someone brought to my attention this product called the Velveeta cheese. And I was absolutely astounded because by that time it was about 28 years old and I had never seen it. I'd never heard it. And so my name actually originates from a name that my oldest sister, the oldest of us five siblings, and her closest friends came up with. And my sister always says that it's a takeoff on one of her other friends' names. So that's really the history of my name. But, you know, some people joke about it, and I always just reply, I am very, very happy with my name. And one of the reasons I am is because it's distinguishable. And <laughs> when I meet someone and am introduced, I introduce myself, they remember my name. And it's been amazing because I've met people from different areas of the country who know someone who I know, either through work or friendship or volunteerism, and they say, oh, I've heard about you. And it's, it's pretty startling. But all in all, I've always liked my name. That's because you have such a great disposition about everything, best I can tell. And you always have. I mean, you have a sunny smile. And I can just picture you as a little girl in Tuscaloosa. And I've read up about you. And I've thought a lot about the despicable George Wallace and mm -hmm. where his voters have gone in recent days. But I was here in Colorado. George Wallace really wasn't a factor in our elections, but in Tuscaloosa, they sure did love the governor. And George yeah. Wallace, he had a grip on the Alabama Democrat Party, and he tried to get a grip on America. Tell us about growing up in his shadow. Well, it's interesting that you would ask that question, but not really surprising, Craig. The home that I mentioned to you, which is still in our family today, it is located within two blocks of the main campus of the University of Alabama. And my parents and grandparents and other relatives and neighbors who owned property all paid their taxes. And when I was six years old, I remember standing in a position not too far from the university campus, but not close enough to be in danger. And I was standing with my father, 
And I was witnessing a very historical event when Vivian Malone Jones and her colleague, James, were admitted to the university. And Wallace, who was extremely short, was standing in the doorway of the admissions office. And there were white people all around with these signs, and they were yelling, they were pushing, you know, trying to attack these students. And I didn't understand, you know, why there was such hatred. So I just asked my dad, why? Why are those people acting like that? Why don't they hate people like us? And my dad said, there is no rational answer for the hate, but change is coming and you can be a part of the change. And so that is what is most vivid in my mind about living so close to the university and the fact that my oldest sibling, who I mentioned, was responsible for naming me, she's 11 years older, and her not being able to attend that university, she is brilliant. But she didn't have an opportunity to even be admitted and make a decision on whether she was going to attend, unlike me. And from that day on, I just knew, you know, that I was going to be a part of the change. And tell everybody how you were. Tell everybody what you did at the University of Alabama and another famous institution of higher learning, Tuskegee in Alabama. Yes, yes, Tuskegee, the Tuskegee Institute. First of all, I just wanted to share that I was one of the first black students to integrate the Alabama previously all-white school system when I was 12. And then I went on to be one of the first to integrate the high schools there. And the high school was only 10 steps from my back door. But yet, for all those generations, none of my family had been able to attend either the middle school or the high school. And that was the situation for all Black people. Right. Honest to God, I still feel like you're my sister. And I'm going to ask this next question. Did anybody in middle school or high school give you problems because you were Black? Because if they did... I want their name and contact information. <laughs> well, yes. And, and you know what's important to know is that every racial slur, every microaggression affects us internally, emotionally, mentally, physically. And so... When I had just entered the seventh grade, after having just turned 12, I was in homeroom. And 
I think there might have been one other black student in homeroom with me, but that student was across the room from where I was seated. And there was this boy named Jimmy Hall. And what I noticed was something that I had never seen in my life because I grew up in a very sheltered, protective environment, was Jimmy Hall was touching the inner part of one of the girl's legs, okay? And I was just astounded because it's like, why is he doing that? And why would she let him do that? And so I remember staring and Jimmy Hall looking up and at me and calling me the N-word. So I immediately just said in a very loud voice, you're a cracker, you know, <laughs> something to that effect, because I've never been shy about calling people out. So that was the experience I had in middle school. Now, I must say, in high school, I'd never experienced any racism except from a high school teacher. I had never heard that students are tracked based upon their test scores. And so one of my teachers was my English teacher, and there were only two black students in her class the year before, and then I was the only student in her class in 12th grade. And every year, the school, there would be one person, one teacher who was responsible for identifying a student. Now, this started with integration. A black student to speak at graduation. And this teacher had said something to me when I was protesting as an 11th grader, and my friends and I were seated all together on the floor along a wall. And I can't remember exactly what we were protesting, but something had happened, not in the school, but outside the school. And so my teacher had, when we disengaged, approached me and said something to the effect, I don't understand why you're among this group who are protesting. That is going to ruin, R-U-I-N, your life chances. And I just looked at her and I said to her, well, you know what? These are my people and I am going to walk with them regardless. And she was astounded. So it was this same teacher who came to me and said, I've selected you to be the graduation speaker, but I never will forget that moment in time. So those were my two experiences, besides the one that I had at six years old and another with a police encounter. Tell us about that police encounter. Well, my dad was 50 years old when I was born. And when I was seven, I had just turned seven, 
he invited me for the first time to go with him on one of his contracting jobs. That is to see a client. He always worked two jobs and he owned this small business, this contracting business. And so at the time my dad was 57 years old, he never had a traffic ticket or any kind of encounter with police that he shared with us before. And we were almost at the client's home and there was this red light and this siren that just started in the back of us. And my dad pulled over to the side of the road and the police car stopped right behind us. This young white policeman, he was about 24 years old, approached my dad and started yelling at him and calling him boy, boy this, you didn't stop at that stop sign, boy that, you should know better. I mean, just all kinds of things. And my dad had gotten out of the car because the policeman had ordered him out of the car. And of course he got out and he had told me to stay inside, do not get out. And when the policeman got to the third boy, I jumped out of the car and I ran around and I stood in front of him in between he and my dad. And I looked at him and I said, you will not, you will not disrespect my father. He is a man and you will not disrespect him. And the officer looked at me and then looked at my dad and said, said something to the effect, you better get this gal straight. Uh, you know, uh, obviously she doesn't know who she's talking to. And so my dad was trying to get me to be quiet. And I said, no, daddy, I will not be quiet because this is wrong. You're a man. And this person who's speaking to you, he's actually a boy and nowhere near where you are and have been in life. And so I would not stop talking and challenging this officer. My dad, you know, he continued to try, but I would not stop. And so the officer looked at me, looked down at me because I was very small and very tiny. He said something to me about, well, I, if you don't shut up, I'm going to take you to juvenile hall. And of course, at seven years old, I had no idea what juvenile hall was. In fact, I didn't learn that until much, much later when I became a prosecutor. And I just looked at him and I said, well, you know what? You can take me to juvenile hall, but I won't be there long because you have no right to take me there. And he just looked at my father and said, you can go. And so, when we got in the car and my dad started driving away, he said, Val, I wish you just had not said anything, that you'd be quiet. And I'm like, why? And he told me that our people have been lynched for much less than what I had done that day. I said to him and my mother, when we got home, I said, you know, you've always taught us that we are no better than anybody else, but we are no lesser either. And that's what I believe. 
And so with those beliefs, I have to speak out. So I remember that so, so very well. And you describe it so beautifully. And the words of wisdom <laughs> from your parents, you're no better than anybody else, but you're no less than anybody else. That's what that's Joe right. Biden got. And that's yes. cool. From his parents. Mm-hmm. And I just want to go back to Vivian Malone Jones, the famous co-ed who integrated the University of Alabama. She was quite a character. I'm sure you know her life. Unfortunately, she's passed away. But did you know her brother-in-law was Eric Holder, who became attorney general? I bet you know all that Alabama stuff. I did. (laughs) Yes. And you know what, Craig, the one thing I didn't mention is that since I was six years old, I've always known my purpose. My purpose was revealed to me at six years old. And so with Vivian Malone, she and her sister, who's married to Eric Holder and is a physician, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, just about 50 miles from where I grew up. And it turned out that rather than moving away for college and further studies, she decided to stay in Alabama, what a lot of people don't know is that both she and her colleague James had already finished their college requirements at historically black institutions. However, integration came about and they decided they would be ones to put themselves, their lives on the line, you know, to integrate, to be the first students to integrate. And so when I mentioned that my life has been purposed, and I've known that from the beginning, Vivian Malone Jones became a regional director of the Civil Rights Division for the Atlanta region, which is an eight-state region. And she preceded me. I became, years later, the actual national director of EPA's civil rights programs. Wow. And, you know, it's like coincidental. I don't think so. I don't think so. But she's a role model for me, as is her sister and others, because they were the first. Right. And Vivian Malone Jones and James Hood are depicted in what famous movie? is their stand in the schoolhouse door depicted, their stand against George Wallace. You know you've got me? It's because it's it's you might not have seen this, but everybody else has Forrest Gump. They have that oh. scene in there. Forrest Gump is there because he's everywhere in American history. I know he is, and you know what? It was so long. The movie was so long. And quite engaging, but I have to tell you, I didn't catch everything. That's something I didn't catch, and I'll go go back back. and look at it. you got to go back (laughs) and look at that. I do. I do. Thank you. So you attended classes at Alabama? Yes. And also at Tuskegee? Didn't you graduate a lot faster than people like Yes. How long did it take you to get through college? Well, actually... At the end of my junior year of high school, I'd finished all the course credits that I needed to graduate. And 
I was on the path to just going ahead and graduating and then moving to D.C. for college. And my oldest sister, who I mentioned before, I called her and she said, no, don't do that. You need to enjoy your senior year in high school. You'll have time, you know, to do these other things. And I listened to her and I thank God that I did. I stayed in school for that 12th grade year. And then, as you mentioned, I was admitted to the University of Alabama and also the Tuskegee Institute. I broke my father's heart in some respects because I was the first admitted to the University of Alabama. And he really wanted me to go there, but I shared with him that I did not feel that I was purposed to go there full time that I was purposed to follow my sister to the Tuskegee Institute. However, I promised my dad that I would take courses at the university during the summers. So that's how I was able to finish my undergraduate degree in three years and move out to Colorado. I'm starting to see a pattern, and you're affiliated with some organization called Sister to Sister, if I've got that Mm -hmm. right. And Mm -hmm. I think your sister had a big part in you discovering Colorado. Tell us about that. Yes. (laughs) Well, my sister is a former military officer. She's a PhD. We can go on and on. But my sister was living and stationed in Colorado at the time. She was stationed at whatever the Army. Fitzsimmons Army Hospital. Fitzsimmons, that's right. I knew it for golf course, anyway. Yes, yes. And so I had come out to visit her after my first year in college. And I was supposed to stay for two weeks, but our father had a stroke, we got the call, as we were heading to the airport, got another call that he had passed away. Craig, I have to tell you, when I got off the plane and my feet actually hit the ground, the earth, here in Colorado, I knew this was where I was supposed to come back. I just knew it, you know? This is where I was supposed to be. This is where I was supposed to pursue my law degree. And having only been here two days, I knew that I had to come back. And, you know, I made a lot of sacrifices to come back. First of all, I left everybody behind. I had no friends, no community, no support, no family. I gave up a full-ride fellowship that I could have used at other law schools, which I'd been admitted, but I just gave everything up because I knew this is where I was supposed to be. And there you are, late 70s, University of Colorado School of Law. They let in, what, 150 people in each class back in the day. I don't know what it is these days. You probably do. I thought it was like 130. We start with 150 and then people drop out along the way. Okay, it's around 180 right now. And it has been for the past, I would say, several years. 
Yeah. So there we are at the Plumbing Law Building. I mean, I grew up in Denver, so Boulder was pretty close to home. But you were from Alabama. What did you think of CU Law School? Were you lonely? And did you think it was challenging? How did you feel about the school? Well, the first year, I was very happy. I had met my soon-to-be husband, who you know well, John, just after starting school. And there were six of us black students admitted. There were three in the second year class and three in the third year class, 12 total out of 150 students there at the law school. And when I got to meet my fellow black classmates, the first thing that I started hearing was CU Law doesn't admit very many of us, and those few who are admitted, they don't make it, and this kind of attitude. And it struck me because it's like, okay, now several of you, three of you are actually from Colorado, you're native Coloradans. One had gone to a very prestigious undergraduate graduated summa cum laude. I mean, she was a National Merit Scholar. We can go on and on. Everybody was, of course, older than me because they'd been out in the work world before coming to law school. But what I found, Craig, is that they were so overcome with the lack of self-confidence that they bought into a stereotypical idea that they could not succeed at CU law. And so by the end of the first semester, they were all on academic probation except for one other student. And at the end of our first year, they were all gone. So that left me basically alone because no black students came in either during our second year or our third year that I recall. I recall none. And I've looked at all the photographs and none came in after that. But it caused me to be extremely lonely. And I called my mother just before Thanksgiving. I said, well, when I get home, I'm going out to the University of Alabama, and I'm just going to transfer because this is a very lonely existence. And my mother said, just wait till you get home, and we'll talk about it. And so when I got home, my mother took me out to the stadium, large football stadium at the university, and we walked around that entire stadium. And she said to me, Val, you have always said since you were six years old that you were going to become a lawyer and you were going to fight for civil rights and you were going to bring about change. And she said, now here you are and you have never let anything or anybody stop you from doing what you 
said you were going to. And she said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's your decision. You're an adult. You decide. And so we went home, and that night I prayed about it, honestly, and thought about my wise mother's words. And I woke up the next morning and told her, I've got to go back. That's where I'm supposed to be. But when I go back, I'm going to do everything possible to help other students not feel lonely, to help them feel as though they belong. And that's what I've done. Gosh, yeah, what a magical story. I did not know about it until I read about it because so much has been written about you and your trailblazing past. But I do know what happened to me that second year of law school is I Mm -hmm. saw a notice on the bulletin board at the Fleming Law Building saying that they were accepting applications to be interns at the Denver DA's office. I had taken criminal law, and I think I was in criminal procedure, and I found those subjects interesting, so I thought I'd apply, and it changed my life. How did you come to apply to be an intern at the Denver DA's office? Well, it changed my life, too, and it was totally not planned at all. Because I have to tell you, although I had taken criminal law and was doing criminal procedure like you, I did not ever feel as though that was going to be one of my paths. So what happened is Claudia Jordan, who became the first black female judge in Colorado and was a year ahead of us. I know you know Claudia. Claudia. She was standing at the bulletin board and I walked over to her and just said, hey, Claudia, do you see anything interesting? And she said, not for me, but I see the perfect internship for you. And I said, What are you talking about? I actually already have two offers, but my ideal place would be at health, education, and welfare as an attorney. So Claudia points me to the same announcement that you saw, Craig, and I'm like, what's the prosecutor's office? What do they do? And she said, well, They prosecute people. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And then she broke it down for me. And I said, Claudia, you know, that is not something that has ever been what I have viewed in my future. So she just kept talking. And I said to her, Claudia, there's no way I will be given an interview let alone be offered an internship position. However, I will go ahead and send in my resume. So I sent in my resume, and about two days later, I get this call, and it was from one of Brooke's assistants. It was Flossie. And she said, Mrs. Wanaki would like to interview you for the internship. And, you know, she asked, when are you available? These are the times we have available. And so I set my interview for after the one at HEW. And as it turned out, one of my 
professors. He was an adjunct professor who was an assistant U.S. attorney. And he and I had a really good relationship. Well, he had gone back. He had asked me, stopped me one day, and we were just talking. He was asking me about what I had planned to do during the summer and the next year. And I just mentioned to him, you know, that I had an interview with both HEW as well as with the DA's office and had completed two other interviews. And he said, well, I already knew you had an interview with HEW because they've already been talking about you. So anyway, he had gone to the chief counsel and said, there's no way you're going to get Vail because she's going to the DA's office. Now, this was before I even interviewed. So, oh, my gosh, when I went to the interview, they offered me some of everything, things that they had never offered any other intern or new attorney. Are you talking about at the Denver DA's office? No, I'm talking about at HEW. Right. I was about to get jealous, like you were getting a better deal. Than <laughs> right. No, no, no. They treated us all the same. I, I appreciate that, really. But I was torn. Because from the first moment I walked into the Denver DA's office and I saw Marilyn at the desk, you know, where she sat as the receptionist greeter, and she greeted me. And then just walking me back to Brooke's office and meeting everybody. And Brooke, after our, I mean, we must have talked for at least two hours. and. There was an immediate connection between Brooke and me. Brooke Wanneke was a trailblazer in her own right. First female trial attorney in Wyoming. Yes. She did amazing things in law school. Stanford grad. She's just one of a kind. Order of the course at CU Law. I mean, she just author of law school textbooks. We can go on and on. But she talked to you for two hours. I don't think she talked that long to me. (laughs) Did you meet Dale Tooley? Was he part of the interview process? No, I had never. I I didn't know who Dale Tooley was. Remember, I didn't even know what the prosecutor's office did. So as it turned out, after our interview, Brooke took me by the hand and she took me back out. And again, I was introduced to Flossie, Linda. Flossie Aston, Linda Roots. All of them. And then Brooke took me directly into the library again, where I had already met Sheila Rappaport and some of the others. There were about four of them sitting at the conference table that day. And she said, well, I want to introduce you to Val. And she left me there. And subsequently came back after I had a chance to engage in conversation with those at the table. She came back, grabbed me by the hand, and then took me back around the area where Norm Early's office used to be. And she started introducing me to everybody in that section. And everybody, you know, who I met, except in addition to Norm, there were two other black attorneys, as you know. I'm trying to think who they were. Jim Hurd and... Uh, uh, oh, my gosh. Keith? 
Keith Johnson. Keith. Keith Johnson. Yes, yes, Keith Johnson. Okay. But everybody else asked me, how do you know Norm? And I'm like, Norm, are you talking about Norm at the law school who runs the clinical program? And they're like, Norm early, you know, and looking at me funny. And I didn't learn till later that Norm was responsible for the black attorneys who had come through the door, with the exception of Gary Jackson. Can I just brag that within the last 10 shows I've had on Norm Early and Gary Jackson, but now I have on Val Golightly Howell. So everybody <laughs> thought you had some connection through Norm, but you really didn't. I had no clue who Norm Early was. So anyway, she took me upstairs. She introduced me to everybody and gave me a chance to interact with them. And then she took me all the way downstairs where the county court was located and anybody who was there, she introduced me to, and she never distinguished between anybody. It was always their first name, her first name, and you could tell she just had rapport and a relationship with all these different people. And that was something that really struck me because that is how I was raised and that's the way I roll. <laughs> I hope Brookie wouldn't mind, but she is a mother hen type and I have a beautiful mother, so did you, but she became a second mother. And I bet after that day, she did. you weren't lonely again because all of a sudden you uh -uh. had a new family at the Denver DA's office. And so did I. And absolutely, it, it was an amazing place. It was. And I have to tell you, Craig, at graduation, Brooke introduced herself to my mother and my family as my second mother. OK. And my mother said to Brooke, I am so appreciative. I so much appreciate all you've done for Vail. I have heard nothing but Brooke this, Brooke that. <laughs> and so I am so happy that you are serving as her second mother because she has nobody, you know, here. But by that time, of course, I had you guys, you know, you, Bill, Mike, Karen. Right. And you had your boyfriend, John, who turned into your husband. Yeah. And we had all of our friends at the DA's office. Right. So. One experience. Yeah, so yeah it, cha it changed. It changed my life totally. And I tell you, the way I made the decision about which position to accept is I called my mother and I said, you know, this is what I had envisioned for many years. But here I am in a position that I never even knew about or thought about, and I'm torn. And my mother said, where did you feel most comfortable? Who made you feel as though you belong? And the answer was easy because of how things went. I mean, the interactions and, you know, the fact that we didn't discuss politics or political affiliations or anything. I didn't recognize it at the time, but somebody told me later, it was like, no, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. We're here to do the people's work. But anyway, 
that's how I made the decision. And my mother also reminded me that when the greatest power opens certain doors, that there's a reason for those doors to be open. So the fact that, you know, I walked over to Claudia, Claudia insisted I apply, and then I get the job offer, but not just a job offer anywhere, but with people who made me feel comfortable, you know, throughout the organization. And so I just knew that that was where I was supposed to be. Same here. And we were part of a remarkable intern class. And Brooke Wanaki was our graduation speaker because our co-presidents of the class, Michael Cohen, who was a fellow Uh intern, great guy, and a guy named Bill Ritter. I'm not sure whatever (laughs) happened to him, but he was our classmate and our fellow intern. And then Karen Steinhauser, who's been an incredibly accomplished lawyer. She's been in Craig's Uh Lawyer's Lounge. You've Mm -hmm. all been in the lounge now. I'm so glad to get you on. But don't you think, I know they had a lot of great classes at the DA's office, but the five of us, I mean, we'll always be together as those Mm -hmm. five from CU. And I don't know. What did you think? It was incredible. And you remember Karen came in during the summer just to intern there during the summer because she was at Creighton. I think she was. Oh, I always mix those up. That's That's right. Drake, that's right. And then she was able to transfer to CU. So that kept our team together. Yeah. Right. And now, do you know we're coming up on 40-year reunion? 40 years? I know. It's it's just so hard uh, I to I think the five of us took imagine. a great picture at our 30th, and I have it in my drawer somewhere. You do? I do. I have that picture. I got to find it and send it to you. But here's the thing. A lot of us have been thinking about our own upbringings and our own attitudes and racial harmony and racial divisiveness. I didn't Mm -hmm. grow up in Alabama. I grew up in Denver and we went through desegregation at the schools and Mm -hmm. I stayed puddled. There was a lot of white flight, but part of it was I lived so close to George Washington that they weren't going to bust me away. And I had a good experience with a lot of black kids and people of different ethnicities at George Washington. Then I went to uh, back East and I played basketball and I just was around a lot of African-Americans. Then CU Law School, not so much, but the DA's office having the experience of such respected DA's as Jim Hurd, Keith Johnson, Norm Early, and then to have a mentor be a female, Brooke Wanaki, my sister is also brilliant. So a lot of people who had views that women couldn't do things or that black people were incapable. <laughs> I, I think that yes. maybe my upbringing shielded me from those kind of bigotries. Yes, I think it did. I think it really did, Craig, because what often happens is that from very early age, they are uh, conditioned. Yeah, they are conditioned. I was searching for another word, but conditioned works well. They are conditioned to believe 
that because of the color of their skin, the whiteness of their skin, they are superior. And really, they don't notice color until they become about three years old. And then they start asking questions. And parents are really hesitant to engage with their young children about color. Oftentimes, they don't know how to engage. There are a lot of resources out there now that can lead any interested parent. But, you know, it's like that frame of mind, that frame of reference is there. And I must tell you, I continually deal with it in different realms whether it be boards, commissions, what have you, where I have taken on the task of ensuring that people are educated, that they are educated, so that at least they have some semblance of what it means to be black in this country and what it's always meant, you know? Right. And you're so much more knowledgeable, both through just living your life, but also tell everybody what you did after law school. You stayed at the DA's office for quite a while, but you've made your mark in so many other ways. You are extremely knowledgeable about race relations. Tell everybody mm-hmm. what you've done with your career that okay. has put you in such a knowledgeable position. Well, I think, you know, being a prosecutor well positioned all of us because Brooke shared that once you can stand on your own two feet, you can think quickly, you can be flexible so that you're attuned, you know, to the environment and you are prepared for the other side's position you are going to be able to do virtually any kind of other job. And so I went to the city attorney's office after finishing my master's while I was a prosecutor in public administration. I was recruited there by Steve Kaplan. (laughs) And I became senior attorney for the city and county of Denver focused on labor and employment. So I was a litigator. I was an advisor to the mayor, to the police chief, to the manager of safety, to the civil service commission. We can go on and on, but it was a great experience. It really was. And there I actually got to meet another mentor who is still a close friend, Darlene Ebert. But I left to take a position for an international union, and I was the first attorney of color to be hired by this particular union. And my position was that of a litigator again, and I focused on employment and labor matters representing union members and at times the union itself. And because they had locations around the country and in other parts of the world, I traveled a lot 
and that was difficult because John and I had just had our oldest son like the year before. How old are they now? Oh, my goodness. The oldest turns 33 in May and the youngest turns 30 in June. So, I mean, time has just passed. How old are your kids? 22 and 18. I still oh, have you one still in have high babies. School. Right. If you remember, I couldn't get a date till I was about 35. <laughs> I remember you saying you couldn't get a date oh, well. until then. Right. Tell everybody what great jobs you've had in your career. Didn't you end up working for Barack Obama? In his administration. So after the union experience, I went to the federal government and I became the chief civil rights attorney for the Rocky Mountain region, but that afforded me an opportunity to do work that affected the nation and to work in D.C. I went back and forth, and that was a great experience. I was actually hired to be only the second black attorney in the Denver Rocky Mountain region and only the fifth in the whole country of out of about 400 attorneys. Were you the first female black deputy DA in Denver? In, in the whole state of Colorado, actually. In the actually. whole state? Yeah. My goodness. So anyway, you know, it's just been my purpose. I, I have simply lived my purpose. And like I said, it's not about me. It's about my heavenly father and all of what he has given me. I want to give credit to your dad and mom and Brooke Wanaki. Yes, absolutely. All of them are my foundation. In fact, I just finished writing something for our newly launched nonprofit, global nonprofit this morning that credits them. And I always try to credit them. Certainly, they are my foundation. But after I was in that position as chief civil rights attorney, and you may have heard this name before, Tom Perez. Who's the head of the Democratic Party right now. That's right. But before that, when he first started, well, his second position in government after serving as legal advisor to Ted Kennedy in the Senate was to become the director of civil rights for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So Tom called to ask me if I would just serve in that position of regional director. I said I would. And two days before the application period closed, Tom called and just said, I still haven't seen, you know, I called personnel and they haven't received your application. I said, well, Tom, you know, I agreed to serve in this position until you found a permanent. And I didn't have any plan to apply. You know, I have two young sons and a husband and a demanding job and volunteerism. And, and he said to me, well, I, and he identified his deputy, Kathy, Kathy and I really would like you to apply. And of course, that doesn't mean you're going to be selected. And I said, of course not. It has to be a fair competition. 
And so I said to him, I have to go home. I have to talk to John. I have to talk to the boys who were six and 10 at the time. And we have to have a family meeting on this. And it really comes down to the outcome of that meeting. And so, of course, our son's not having a clue as to what I was talking about. They said, oh, mom, yes, you've got to do it. And John said, you know what? This is your purpose. This is your purpose. It's just another step in that direction. You've got to do it. Call my mother, and she too just said, you know what? You make the decision, but this is something that has been open to you. And so I applied and went to D.C. for the interview, and they just said, you have the position. There is nobody in this country that we have identified who is going to be able to bring about the change you have within such a short period of time. It was like eight months. And so I took that on. What was your title then? Oh, I was director of civil rights, Rocky Mountain region. So that meant I had responsibility for six states, including Colorado, where I led and oversaw the management of HIPAA and civil rights enforcement. Wow. And I have to tell Good you, job. we we actually developed HIPAA. We started when I just after, I think it might have been the year that I began. When we're filling out all those forms at the doctor's office, are you the person That's responsible? Right. That's right. You might still see my name on some of them because somebody brought to my attention just about a month ago that he saw my name on these documents. He's a state employee. So, yeah, they haven't switched out the documents, but I'm responsible. I'm part of that crew that's responsible. How many people have you supervised through your 40-year career? Have you thought oh, about that? I don't know. I, I, you know what? I don't really keep track of that, Craig, because for me, it's not about supervision. It's about leading and developing other people so that they can go on and do what they are intended to do as their life purposes. And so, you know, my focus has really been on bringing in and developing as many as I possibly could. And actually, I created paid internship programs, externship programs, volunteer programs for students, which became regional and national models. So there have been a whole lot of people, and particularly law students and professional students, who have been able to gain that kind of real-world experience, because no intern is brought in to just sit in the back of a room or back of a library and read cases and provide memos. They do the real-life work of what the attorneys do, and all of the investigators are attorneys, okay? 
first of all, I feel small compared to you because I think I've supervised about two or three people in my life as a chief deputy and, you know, a secretary or two. But that's okay. I'm not insecure. I have a lot of fun things that I do, like writing columns for the Colorado Mm -hmm. Sun. And I was going to write about the impeachment trial. And it seemed to me that a lot of these inciting a riot cases came out of the Klan. Then I was researching that when I stumbled on an audio tape of O. Otto Moore, Judge Moore, former Supreme Court Justice Moore, who was part of our Denver DA team. And next thing I know, the Denver Public Library, some nice person, emailed me an audio tape of O. Otto Moore in 1962 describing what it was like when he became a deputy DA in Denver under Philip Van Sice fighting the Klan in the early 20s at a time when my grandpa Harry was just out of the same law school as O. Otto Moore. So I'm going to play some of that sound on my podcast today, but I describe my memories of Judge Moore. But what about you? What do you remember about O. Otto Moore? What I remember about him, he, to me, represented like Dale and Brooke, what leaders are all about. They are non-pretentious. They are welcoming. They are engaging. They do not, you know, flaunt accomplishments. You know, although there are times when you have to speak to those things. But I just remember Brooke introducing him to me when I came in for the interview, because she left me with him before, and and we sat down and had a conversation before I even saw Dale. Dale was the last person I interviewed with. But Judge Moore, what he talked about was his wife, Cherie, and you know the love affair that the two of them had. I mean, what was it, 70 years or something? I'm just kind of startled because he didn't open up to me about his marriage. (laughs) Only time I really remember him talking to me is that time he yelled at me, Silverman, get over here. And I ran across the library. I said, Your Honor, I thought I screwed up a brief or something. He said, if it wasn't for your grandfather, I would have been number one at Westminster (laughs) Law School. What a story. It's true. But that's about my only real memory of interacting with him, except admiring him. Funny, though. Funny. You know, never condescending, never making you feel lesser than. So that's what I got from him. And it wasn't until after I had interviewed and been at the office for a while, somebody referred to him as Chief Justice Moore. And I looked at the person and said, what, who? And that's when I learned that he had been Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. And written well over a thousand opinions. But he was unpretentious. We called him Judge Moore instead of Chief Justice Moore. Yes, this person referred to him, because Brooke always referred to him as Judge Moore, Dale. You know, we all did. And so I I just continued referring to him as Judge Moore because, you know, that's how everybody else greeted him. And I felt he wanted to be greeted. 
just amazing. Let's move to yes. modern times because you're a trailblazer. So is Kamala Harris. I wonder how you felt on that day. I was taken with the words of wisdom from that former prosecutor. She said, I may be the first black female vice president, but I'm not going to be the last. And I think she's got that right. What an ascendant time for women of color. How does it make you feel? It made me feel good. But I have to tell you, of course, it's been a long time in the making, but I feel more hopeful at this point. I really do. What struck me about our now vice president is something that she said in one of the presidential debates. And that was she told the story of her life. And at the end, she said, that little girl was me. Well, years before, I had written an article called Reflections, and I had, you know, shared some of my life experiences, and at the end, because I started it out just the way she did, with there was this little girl, and I said, of African and Native descent. And I went through some of my life experiences, and at the end I said, that little girl is me. So that is what captured me more than anything and made me feel as though we had some kind of affinity. Although I have never met her, and chances are, well, I won't say never, because you never know what's going to happen. But, you know, and the fact that she was a prosecutor, and she had to make really tough decisions, and she became the DA, I mean, and and she was confronted with all of these people saying, well, you're black, you know, why are you making these decisions? Well, I encountered the same thing from the few black attorneys, the few black defense attorneys who came through the courtroom. You know, actually, I shouldn't say I encountered it blatantly with one particular black defense attorney who is no longer alive, when he just tried to rip me up and down because I wouldn't offer him a plea bargain that he felt his client was entitled to. And he just tried to rip me up and down. And I just stood and looked at him and I said, I've made my decision and walked away. But it's like, Sometimes there's an expectation that because you are of a certain caste, I, would, I don't use race anymore, Craig, because there is only one race. There really is only one. And that is documented scientifically. And I can send you the site to a National Geographic magazine that focused only on race. But I use the word cast, C-A-S-T-E. Right. And there's a, what is it, Isabel Wilkerson has written a a book by that title. But I've noticed, and I brought it up with uh, my other guest this week, Joe Walsh, former congressman, that among Mm -hmm. conservatives, I've noticed special animus and exaggeration of the deficits of Kamala Harris to the point where I think it's (laughs) racist. And I'm worried about American racism. I thought 
we were getting better. Like Dr. King said, the arc of history bends toward justice. But what are we witnessing these days? Is this the last gasp right. of racism or is it something worse? We are living in a time and we have been living in a time since 2009 when President Barack Obama was elected, where the advancements that we thought had been made in equality and civil rights were turned completely back. And as it turned out, there had not really been so much of an advancement to the extent that we black people are accepted for who we are at our core, what we offer, our value. We are not accepted in that light. It used to be a faux pas to say things out loud, you know, to verbally express hate. And in 2015. That changed when a guy came down the escalator and started talking about Mexicans. I rail against him all the time. That's kind of the purpose of my podcast. I was dedicated to his defeat, and I'm dedicated to his conviction at this upcoming impeachment trial. And I know people say, Craig, you're a dreamer. It's impossible. You need 12 more Republicans to join with the five who seem to Mm -hmm. be on the side of justice. I say I like that challenge, to convince Mm -hmm. 12 people sitting in a box with evidence, (laughs) and I think I can do it. But maybe I'm a dreamer. What do you think? Is it possible? You're not a dreamer, but what it will take is unification, us joining together and working towards that cause. Because no one person or no few people can do it alone. We have to join as unified bodies and action oriented bodies, not just those that speak, you know, what we think others want to hear us Mm -hmm. say, but us who truly actualize what we say. It's definitely possible. It's just the willingness. I won't identify with which organization I'm associated with in this comparison, but when I was selected for this particular body, and I joined, and I started engaging with others who are part of this body, have very, very important influential decision-making positions. I saw that there was a need for training, education, engagement around caste-related issues, discrimination, anti-blackness issues. And so I took it upon myself to call this out. And fortunately, those who could make these things happen actually have. So last week, We were having a training 
And it was one where we've moved on to people opening up and sharing their feelings and their thoughts and their experiences. Well, my white colleagues, they were talking about, you know, this is what I want to do. This is what I'd like to do now that I have learned, you know, now that some of you have taught us what a microaggression is, what you've taught us about lived experiences, and, and that's what I want to do this, but I'm afraid because I don't know how it's going to affect my life, my career, and the life of my family. And I just said, I understand your fear, of course. Fear is natural. But just think about it in the context of you seeing a wrong, you knowing that people are not being treated equally or fairly, whether it's within a law firm or somewhere else, and you don't speak to that because of your fear, you might as well not have knowledge. And that might sound somewhat, I wouldn't say crude, but it may sound somewhat off-putting, but I believe, and I believe this for all people, regardless of, you know, caste, ethnicity, gender, that you have a voice and your voice is to use. We aren't given a voice. We aren't given opportunities to be in these environments that are influential where critical decisions are made about other people's lives. And we don't have the courage to speak out. Well, I've always been one to speak out. I don't know if you remember that about me. I do, of course. I don't know. You remember how skinny I was? Anyway. I do. And you remember how small I was. I'm not much bigger now, but yeah, I remember. I'm skinny again. Mm -hmm. so it's but I mean, you, con you controlled the courtroom in the sense of your trials. I was always just absolutely amazed because, you know, you and I are so totally different when it comes to organization. And your office, you couldn't even get into the office and find a place to sit without moving a whole bunch of stuff. And you and I would work late. I don't know if you remember this, but we did. And I would sometimes come by and sit in your office just to chat. And <laughs> I would go home and I'd tell John, I don't know how Craig does this. I don't know how he finds anything. But when he stands up in court, he is totally prepared and he fully engages the jurors. You know, he's on his mark. So his system of organization works for him, although it wouldn't work for me. But yes, I remember. Even at my office now, people say, look at all those yellow pads strewn around. But I know where they are. And just give me a yellow pad and a pen. <laughs> and Dave Purdy taught us a filing system where you put things in file folders. Now it's a little more electronic, but 
Here's the cool thing that you've given me so much time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And if you think about it, Bill, as this impeachment trial takes place, you are part of it because, A, you've been in government, but think about the House managers, the prosecutors from Colorado, Diana DeGette. A mm-hmm. female, Jonah Goose, yes. proud mm-hmm. African-American, and two smart-as-hell people. Isn't that kind of reflective of where we came from and, mm-hmm. and the path that you blazed? Well, the path that we blazed, we have blazed, because I've followed your career. And I must say that I was so proud of you when I saw how you had come out against Trump and said, I cannot condone this. I tell you to this day, I remember when I read that on CNN.com or somewhere, and I just, I yelled at John, I said, hey, you've got to come see what Craig has written. And anyway, I wanted to just thank you for all that you do, Craig. And I just remembered, I did not fully answer your question about career. So Gina McCarthy worked for Gina at EPA, National Director of Civil Rights, handling four different programs. And then I actually, due to a serious auto accident, was forced to return to Colorado. And I had planned to come back anyway. We always planned we were going to come back. We kept our home and everything. One of the things that I I had started 27 years ago was an informal group called Sister to Sister. But I always knew that it was supposed to be large, as large as possible, to touch as many black women and girls as possible. So just on... The 31st of January, after a year of planning with a lot of incredibly talented, successful, caring black women who are all friends, we launched Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African-American. Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African-American Women. You never stop. How many different pensions are you collecting now? I don't even get paid for most of the work I do. I know, I, I have but one, you... one, one retirement plan because I left the DA's office and, and the city attorney's office too early to I know. qualify. So I, you know, Isn't one retirement yeah, now the DAs have a good pension plan, but first sure eight years do. of my career, nothing. But I'll tell you, I got everything out of this call, Bell. It's so good to well, catch up you with you. thank you for the opportunity, Craig. I really appreciate it. Craig, again, you'll always be dear to me, and I just really, really do appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thanks, Bell. And Take let's care. get together. God willing, COVID will be over by the time of our 40th reunion. Let's make it happen, okay? We will make it happen. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Boy, I'm pleased with this show. I hope you are too. Thank you to Joe Walsh. Thank you to the late Judge Oato Moore for the great interview and Denver Public Library for making it available. My troubadour, that song, Come Down, Miss Lizzie, fantastic. 
Alexei Navalny, Godspeed. I hope your sacrifice yields peace and great things for your people. Velveeta Go Lightly, what an honor to know you. I treasure our relationship. Thank you for coming into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you to my audience. Thanks to my sponsors. I'll talk to you next week about the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. Have a good one. Have a super weekend. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.